Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. What's good, Internet? It's February 24th, 2023, and you are listening to Waypoint Radio, episode 544. I'm your host, Rob Zachney, and I'm joined by Ricardo Contreras. Hello. Patrick Klepek. Hi. And Renata Price. Howdy. Uh, so I guess we'll just dive right into it. Um, you know, if you if you gave me if you told me that like we're making Soviet Sputnik era Bioshock, I would find that an intoxicating pitch for a game, and that is broadly what developer uh, Monfish had served up with the release of Atomic Heart. At first glance, it checks a lot of the boxes: a beautiful model utopian city built on magical technology thrown into chaos by what amounts to workplace intrigue, and a mysterious protagonist with magic powers who is sent in to sort things out. I think we've—I think a number of us have been playing a bit of this, but before we dig into our experiences, we should probably note there's been a little bit of controversy around this game, uh, tied to, as you might expect, primarily the ongoing war in Ukraine and alleged ties to the Russian government that uh, the game has. Ren, you wrote a bit about this. Can you outline for us like what the discourse is here? Yes. Uh, so effectively, uh, Munfish was originally founded um, in Russia and then moved to Cyprus in 2017. Uh, it is a studio that was that has like no previous uh, released games. Uh, they were working on like a VR title before they shut it down to focus on Atomic Heart. In the trailer, also dropped out of nowhere. Yes. Like when this game, part of the allure of this game is that when the in in the absence of a new shock, anything right, like where that series is essentially dropped off the map despite a template being established and no one picking up on it. Atomic Heart drops this like really grandiose trailer that very much suggested this game is never coming out. Right. You will never play it because how many times do you <laughs> see the like Unreal Engine adjacent pitch of a game that never amounts to anything? The ambition is fantastic. We, uh, I appreciate a good trailer. But I remember seeing that thing back in 2017, 2018 being like, well, I will, I will never play that game good or bad. But thank you for uh, the interesting aesthetics. Especially when, again, the developer Munfish has no published games previously. <laughs> it's like you're going to make a big Bioshock game. Like, good fucking luck. Have fun doing the actual work of building that. Right. Uh, and so that was the initial, like, there was some initial, like, grumbling about the game for these exact reasons. Right. And then uh, it was originally headquartered in uh, Moscow. And then they moved their offices to Cyprus. Uh, it's now a Cyprus-based company. Um, and... The discourse mainly revolves around the fact that it was made by a significantly Russian team, 
that is that is that is point of uh, of discourse one, which I think is honestly the the weakest point point of discourse here is that it was made, you know, by Russian developers. Whoops, um, I was born here. Yeah, crazy. Damn, <laughs> fucked up. Hey, fucked up that happened to you. Later. Guess I should guess I should just not make things or aspire. Anyway, yeah. continue. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Um, that's point of discourse one. Point of discourse two is the funding behind Munfish, uh, which is coming from GEM, well, among other things, Gaijin Entertainment, Tencent, uh, and GEM Capital. Uh, GEM Capital is a Cyprus-based uh, firm that was started by a former executive uh, at Gazprom, which is a Russian national gas company. Uh, is effectively like the, the one of the largest state-backed uh, corporations in all of Russia. Uh, and uh, GEM Capital was funded by a former executive there who uh, then creates uh, this firm in Cyprus that is investing in a lot of video games, uh, a lot of media properties broadly. Uh, Wanted Dead uh, is one of those games. Uh, this is The Police uh, was also funded by GEM Capital. Um, and finally, uh, the game's publisher, in terms of the the like context around the, the game's publisher in Russia is Viki Play, which is a... Uh, the gaming subdivision of a large media conglomerate and social media company uh, that works with and is like state approved uh, by uh, the the Russian government. And so there are concerns over where the money for the game is going. To be clear, if you buy the game, it will go to GEM Capital uh, and by uh, by a long series of proxies, the Russian state. That's 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 just how buying things works. Um, but, uh, in addition to all of this, there is also, uh, the suggestion that elements of the game are either poking fun at or actively like discriminatory, like actively propagandizing against, uh, Ukrainians. Um, and that content is the inclusion of, uh, a lot of pigs in the game. Uh, uh, pigs is a, like very common or swine is like a very common uh like russian derogatory term that is thrown around uh, specifically with ukrainians uh this was furthered by a, a uh in-game texture of a can of pork that has the ukrainian flag colors it's also worth noting that the color scheme on that can is just an upside down version of peck which is the largest canned pork product in all of eastern europe and is made in poland um, also the area where the pigs are is also full of cows it's also full of cows yeah and that's i just did that section of the game it's yeah i mean maybe there are more pigs but there's and there's also a chicken that is pecking the eye of a dead body <laughs> yeah there's also yeah there's also the open world it's it's goofy i think this is the weakest point and so all of this um oh also the sex robots that the game's marketing is built around uh do look like do have the exact same haircut as a uh, former ukrainian uh i believe she was the prime minister or president um uh Yana timoshenko i don't remember her first name um they Munfish statement is also, uh, which is complicated given that they, you know, their ties to their literal geography. But the better statement was, uh, like the game's release was coming closer and people were putting a lot more scrutiny on uh, Munfish. And they put out a statement on Twitter that was, guys, which is always a great way to start a statement. <laughs> hey, hey, team. 
Hey, fellas, get in here. I, I guess, you know, better than putting out a notes app screenshot. Um, but uh, uh, so, was, uh, guys, we have noted the questions surrounding where we at Munfish stand. We want to assure you that Munfish is a developer and studio with a global team focused on an innovative game and is undeniably a pro peace organization against violence uh, against people. Um, and then I think there's a fo- I don't have the follow up here, but it, it includes uh, essentially a, a quote that, you know, we don't take a stance on. Uh, politics or religion. And I think it's very easy to poke fun at that statement. The mo- the most charitable interpretation is what do you expect them to say given yeah. where they are um, and the potential uh, personal ramifications for like taking an anti-war, anti-Russian stance as th- like this game comes out, um, mm. which I think is a I think it's certainly fair to criticize. Uh, but I also think it's very easy to look at that and go, why? <laughs> what do you want them to say? <laughs> Uh, and correct me, like I believe the uh, Ukrainian like te- technology ministry uh, also requested yes. that platform holders plus Steam, uh, Steam is a platform holder, but basically the console platform holders and Steam uh, would not list uh, the game in Ukraine. Yes, it's uh, banned in the Ukraine based on a st- uh, a law uh, put into uh, like practice in 2015. Uh, banning the uh, use of Nazi and Soviet imagery uh, and things that like um, you know encourage like Nazi or Soviet imagery um, and and you know those those platforms stuff that falls in a sort of like propaganda yes. or or could be in, in in be be seen as as propaganda uh, especially in in the region and Steam, which is one the Steam uh, like essentially doesn't exist in Russia at the moment like they. They pulled out um, uh, during the the initial war uh, in Ukraine, and so there are alternate alternate ways to get the game. But like Steam itself does not at least operate officially uh, in, out there in Russia, anymore, I believe. No, yeah. no. Uh, and so Ukraine has uh, basically put out a, a ban on the game's uh, distribution within Ukraine, and has also encouraged uh, other states and platform holders to limit the game's distribution uh, in their own like domestic markets. Uh, that was the uh, additional request. <laughs> like paying of- for a Game Pass a deal for the game to show. You know what I mean? That's kind of the whole opposite of that. <laughs> because this game is on Game Pass uh, on Xbox. So, whoops. Yeah. Um, well, like, and this is the thing where, uh, you know, like we, we talked a lot about, uh, you know, as a Cypress-based developer. But, like, as we all know, like, Cyprus is, nothing is Cyprus-based. Like, Cyprus is where, Cyprus is where things are registered. Let's say, can you explain, get, I, f- I feel like people hear that term, even I hear that term. Can you unpack a little bit about what that actually means or implies, or why people would kind of flinch at it? Uh, so, there have always been, but, like, now there's a diminishing number of places that broadly don't comply with a lot of tax law and like tax and disclosure laws uh, that exist around finances uh, that are common in like a lot of the world. And like, so for instance, you used to hear a lot about like the, the Swiss bank account, right. Uh, is the thing you would hear about uh, Swiss, Switzerland was kind of like, I think broadly forced to change its banking policies uh, in order to stay like plugged into the global financial system and stay in good, stay in good graces. And so, like Switzerland is no longer uh, a place that is whereas it is it is as easy to like uh, silo tons of sketchy cash. Uh, however, is, is this related to also like when we would hear like headlines of like, hey, like Apple, like trillion dollar company pays no 
taxes because they're doing these sort of like these shell games with these companies. I, yeah, I don't like know if that's directly related to Cyprus, but it's like playing the same sort of game, right? Right. Like, and and they do tend to be like uh, like it tends to be a lot of like small island nations for what it is worth, uh, where like ex colonies or like places like formerly granted like dominion status. But the, the big thing is there's a lot of like literally offshore uh, like, like countries that have really lax uh, d- disclosure uh, regulations. And uh, so like a lot of companies will end up incorporating there uh, a bit like, you know, if you, in the United States, for instance, uh, Companies use Delaware for this purpose because it has like really permissive laws about uh, like corporate rights. And so a lot of a lot of uh, companies will incorporate or register things to Cyprus because it is easier to sort of just have capital flow into and out of Cyprus without people asking about where it is from. Uh, Those local economies like is the reason that happens to the best of your knowledge like. Hey, we'll set it up this way. Companies come here and we skim a little. Like, is that like like a a function of the engine of their economy? By yeah. okay, yeah. Like, that makes sense. They still like like they because think of it like in the United States does not have high corporate taxes, but they're like through the roof compared to what some of these places would charge. But that little bit that a place like Cyprus might charge is a, a massive windfall. Uh, to like the government in in Cyprus, um, but so when, when we talk about like things that are based out of Cyprus, that that's kind of fake. Uh, that 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 is broadly like like there's not, uh, to my knowledge, I don't think there's much like physical infrastructure for any of these companies uh, in these places. Uh, when we talk about like Gaiji Entertainment, we're talking about War Thunder. Broadly, that is developed not in Cyprus. They they do say that they have an office there, uh, but having an office somewhere is, 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 is pretty easy. Very easy to do. There's, there's a reason that their studio tour from, I believe 2017 or 2000, they have a studio tour, uh, that is very much in, in Moscow. Uh, and, uh, as part of the studio tour, he goes, uh, yeah, it's in Moscow here in Russia and just makes it very clear where the game is being developed from. And so their caginess about the studio's caginess around who is developing the game and where the game is being developed has also, fueled some of this controversy as well as the fact that like i think that this is like a interesting there's some interesting parallels between this and the harry potter discourse recently insofar as it is requiring a but it is leading to a bunch of people who have not had to seriously consider where the media they consume comes from or who consuming that media materially benefits are being forced to reckon with that for the first time uh, and they're all doing it extremely publicly uh, in a way that is just like spawning n- near constant discourse and well, discourse and, that. Oh, yeah, please. It, well, in both these cases, too, like this is also like. These have like this is also both driven by activist campaigns, like there is a reason that people want to pick these fights, like in this case, when we, when we talk about like Ukraine, the government of Ukraine uh, sort of both banning it in their territory, but also asking like places to brought it like ban it more broadly part of what they are doing there is they are calling attention to uh like the game's ties to like russia and the russian government but also it is a way of frankly like keeping this front of mind for a lot of like uh demographics in other countries that ukraine needs to sort of stay on side 
And it's also in addition to this, like for them, it is, it is, it, it is, you know, uh, intentional, but also like the counter backlash operates on the same core principle, right. Or the yeah. same like core operating procedure where like both Harry Potter and um, this have like a, a contingent of people who are like, I'm buying the game just for it. And let me post about that fact really publicly to own the libs. And like, one, I think that both of these situations kind of highlight the extremely, extremely short limits of consumer activism. Consumer act. I'm, I imagine the heavy air quotes there. Yeah, that game um, just sold 12 million copies and almost made a billion dollars. Yeah, exactly. Two weeks. So yeah. who cares? Like it's, it's, be, be, it's, it's, it better, it's better for the role that Gita Jackson's review of Polygon is out there than just yeah. pretending the game doesn't exist. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, 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 it's goofy. Um, yeah. The consumer activism shit doesn't work uh, unless it is the... I will say this, consumer activism is only really effective when combined with, like, consistent direct action campaigns. Uh, there's a reason that uh, the BDS movement uh, is, as far as, like, successful long-term boycotts go, probably the most successful of the last several decades. But even decades. there, though, the backlash, like, is picking has picked up speed, where, like, right. uh, BDS has is increasingly being turned you into an You cannot utter that phrase. You cannot utter that phrase. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Right. Where where it's like there's like states passing laws where you can't you, you can't honor any like BDS uh, obligations. Ditto the uh, green investing thing. Uh, yeah. Activists really targeted um, like there's a couple things like that. Both like climate uh, issues when it comes to like financing uh, like uh, like oil and gas uh, exploitation projects, but also there's the uh, ESG uh, trend in investing. And the minute that started to really take up, uh, like pick up some speed, you saw like right wing uh, places, notably Florida, started passing laws where it's like if your if your firm is investing in uh, ESG companies, then we're going to pull our state pensions out of your fund. Uh, so like even there, like when you do have these like successful campaigns, uh, is the frustrating it's the frustrating thing where immediately it's spun into a weird backlash thing. Right, exactly. And um, you know, the the backlash takes a bunch of different forms. And like one of the things that's like been happening here is that like I've said, the the like people being like, Oh, I'm gonna buy this because it's pi- because it's pissing you off, because I would like to support the genocide of Ukraine. Like not Does that exist but- here? Is that like oh. is that like a meaningful I mean, other than people like but I mean I can imagine like pro Russia pro, like th- troll operations, but I just mean like there's a genuine pro Rowling Harry like that uh, that I no, can I, ge- like. I don't know if it's genuine, but people are posting that shit. Like for this for this article, I had to look at a lot of bad tweets. I had to <laughs> I had to I had to look at a lot of bad posts, Patrick. I'm gonna I'm gonna come to you in a moment. I'm I just wonder. I just I just real, and I know there's no way for like, you to know this. I, I agree with. I'm sure there's plenty of it. I just wonder how much of that is propaganda versus actual people going out and doing a thing and i i i I can't pull that apart either um i i can i can give you i can give you why i think it's real people are really horny about it like people are like i bought this game i care more about the sexy robots than i do ukraine like that is there it's not just like i bought this because i want to fuck over ukrainians it's i bought this because i'm so horny that i don't care if i fuck over ukrainians and actually that makes it better for me there is like like, weird in such a specific way i almost worry i almost wonder if it can't be propaganda 
Well, it's kind of a thread that runs through a lot of reactionary politics, right? Where like the very second, like you, you take, you take anything like, and this sort of polarization effect takes place where, you know, you look at like a random game and the minute someone like it has something associated with it and someone says, I think this, like, I think there are good reasons to not purchase this product. This product should probably not exist. Mm-hmm. There is a class of people who, regardless of what those reasons are, the minute they hear that, they're going to be like, fuck you for even like bring that up or making me think that I should care about that. I am going to now buy five copies uh, because like that, despite you and d- despite whatever your ideology is. The other thing I will say is like the war in Ukraine is an odd situation in terms of how it falls across politics because uh, like it doesn't follow a, a straight up right left split. Like you have like parts of conservative politics who are still very comfortable with the idea of like, you know, Russia is a like national rival. It is a, it is a great power adversary and so they find it very easy to sort of be all like, uh, you know, pro Ukraine. But like Russia has also cultivated quite successfully uh, like identification with Russia as being a defender of traditional Western values. And so you get like the the movement that like Tucker Carlson is the most like uh, like obvious proponent of has gotten weirdly like anti-Ukraine and pro uh, pro Russia. Sometimes they dress it up as, uh, you know, isolationism, like we shouldn't be involved in a conflict like this. You know, we've sort of helped drive it. But there is a big component of it, too, where it is. Putin is standing against the woke ideology, like Mm -hmm. like Putin is an aspirational figure for us. And we want him to succeed much like Look, he's, they he basically embraced, the gays. We can do it too. They ba- the way they basically embraced uh, the Orban government and Hungary as like the 51st state and as a Republican like dream. The, the other thing about like the, the specific role of like the, the, the right in this particular discourse is that it is. And, and to return to like what people are upset about, like in terms of in-game content, all the in-game content I described is a massive stretch. Like, like it is just, it is to me a pretty, a pretty massive stretch. But it doesn't matter that it's a massive stretch because in terms of the way it functions in discourse and in conversation, the absurdity is kind of the point. Like, if if I am, if I am out here trying to convince you that this game is anti-Ukrainian because I believe it is I genuinely believe it is anti-Ukrainian and then the discourse becomes about whether or not pigs are the the presence of pigs in the text are an instance of anti-Ukrainian bias but we're already done I already look like a fucking idiot I look like the dumbest bitch in the room and it's over and like that is the that is another key part of this discourse is like people are baiting that intentionally and then using it to immediately shut down pretty much every other line of critique. Uh, and this happened with the Harry Potter shit too. We're like, it, if you don't have to care, if you don't have to play by like the rules of like, you know, meaning, then you can do whatever the fuck you want. You can say any words in any order and you know, it, it, it doesn't matter. It's going to be think this, no matter what. I do think this game is interesting because it touches like the part of the Bioshock pitch, right? I, I don't think many people were all that familiar with 
Anne Rhine and like libertarianism when that game came out. I think that was an, a door opening to an ideology that had no place in a lot of people's minds. Young Rob Zachney, I believe, was fully aware of what they were seeing the moment they were walking down the steps of Rapture. But I think for a lot of us, like the notion of this world wrapped up in an ideology that feels foreign to us was in many ways part of the appeal like of like what Bioshock as a setting functions as. It is a walking into a world wrapped in an ideology that is then represented in its architecture, in its characters. And I part of what makes this game interesting, and especially that like the iconography of this game is if you have grown up like and this I'm sure maybe this depends on age to some degree being told Russia is evil. Everything associated with Russian iconography architecture represents everything that you are against walking through that first hour of uh, Atomic Heart is strange to see it all propped up as this is utopia. This is what the world could be. And I I think there is a world in which you, in some ways, cannot separate people's anxiety with playing the game from a sort of propaganda effort about, like, the Red Scare over decades that then this game puts in front of you, even if ultimately where I think this game is going is like, hey, they're like bad actors and, like, like things are going bad here and the people you're being tasked to kill probably were the good guys. But there is something about going into this world and seeing that iconography hyperbolized that... I'm not, it's I. It's, it's a little strange and foreign, like given where I've grown up and what I've seen in media for decades. I, I think that it is a, I think that the way that people have uh, construed like Russia as a state like not just as a state or like but as like a, a like a cultural legacy is fucking wild I think I think it's I think it's, I think it's wild uh in terms of like <sighs> so I mean like uh, when I when I step into this world I think what what I find because there, there's kind of layers to this right yeah uh it does like it is kind of an alien thing from say someone who grew up at the tail end of the cold war but in part because uh, so often the way uh, Russia was poor, like this moment had already passed in in the Soviet Union, by the way, like this entire mm-hmm. like era had passed. It was it, it was also a memory by then. So a lot of us uh, would have come into some awareness of like the the tail end of the Soviet Union. But certainly this was reinforced through a lot of popular media as like uh, it is drab. It is gray. Uh, it is, you know, like technology is rare and it is like uh busted compared to what a, what is coming out of and they're all drinking vodka economies. rob yeah and uh the the thing that this is tapping into is like a soviet futurism that is actually really reminiscent of like uh you know the the spirit of when the world's fair was a mm-hmm. a thing and so what you see here is like a nostalgia for a certain way that the Soviet Union uh, and like Soviet ideologues envisioned the future 50, 60 year, years ago uh, at this point, 70 years ago. And it, the, it's sort of the, it's one of those things where like the alternate history here is that by the time uh, like the Soviet Union uh, puts a, a man into space, for instance, They've also basically already brought to life a 
like utopian Soviet futurist vision uh, that like historically didn't didn't unfold. And so there, there's kind of a there's kind of layers to this in part because I think it is, you know, if you're coming at it from sort of a U.S. centric perspective, uh, there's entire aesthetics here, entire vibes that you just don't associate with the Soviet Union. But then also there is a, you know, from what I've picked up from like Russian, Ukrainian, uh, like like friends and peers, like there is also a like real nostalgia at times uh, for some of the idealism uh, that and and sincerity that went with bits and pieces of like uh, like old school propaganda like is this the, is it the equivalent of like the fallout like 50s like nostalgia but just yeah. Yeah. fitted to a different yeah yeah, yeah it's like that's that's that, to, to me it read almost immediately as uh bioshock infinite the opening literally what i feel but, like it's like right you're walking through the city and it's like yeah. columbia is this big utopia and then there's the turn at the end it's like and the and and the utopia is racist by the way right where you have to like hit that um <laughs> oh my God. but it's explicitly modeled after the world's fair <laughs> right and exactly a- and, expo and yeah. so when i'm playing i played the first like 40 minutes of this i managed to sneak it in just before we started recording the like the only thing i see i end up walking away from that section for is like it feels like they're setting up and satirizing the idealism of the Soviet Union, like that, that ideal is not nostalgic for that idealism. It's actually about to turn it on. It's, it's about to like make them the bad guys. I feel like, because there's that every time you walk by one of those fucking vendors with the, the control thing where you're putting the chip in your head, I was just like, Oh, they're making a fucking Wait. joke about <laughs> what, uh, what, what are they making a joke about? Well, I mean, I just mean like, like the like idea of like a collective like consciousness and like collectivism in general as like I a, think that's a, like a high mind, it, right? But it certainly also is screaming to me that actually what's satirizing most is what we've done to ourselves with these fucking these fucking phones. It's like you be on that the phone way, though. The way we now relate to but technology, it, it's it's it, right, but like it, it also like it plays into that like that classic fear that people put on communism of like losing individuality. Right. right. And so like mm-hmm. all, the only way I could read those opening hours is not that it's actually sincerely th- considering a utopic vision of the Soviet union. It's like, here's your utopian vision. There's these undercurrents here that w- is why communism is actually bad in the end. Right. Like it's, it's doing the thing that literally all of these do to me, which is that like s- technological, it, it's, it's, it's the same thesis mm-hmm. that we have seen. Mm-hmm. A thousand fucking times, which is that technological process. Technological progress does not equate to the solving of of underlying social issues. Right. Right. Like that's that's the thing. They're just doing the same thing, but with a different But not with communism. Right. Instead of libertarianism and instead of uh, Americana, Americana or whatever Columbia was. Right. But like, yeah. I'm just not not sure how much I I play like six hours of this. Mm -hmm. Like the most you're getting about like what you're talking about, like, damn, what does this have to say about the collective? 
is presented in that 45 yes. minutes. Yes, and right. it's a yeah. long fucking... Because here's the thing. Dude, we Kato, Kato, have you, have you even have played the game yet? It. No. Okay, so let's just that's let's the rip thing. the band-aid. That's the thing. I like definitely it's, spent a long time walking around and listening to all of those people talk out because I'm like, what the fuck are they trying to say here? This game's got jack shit to say. Yeah. Well, this game's got a lot to say. <laughs> it's got a lot to <laughs> all say. Right, all right. But it's got jack shit to say after the opening 45 all right, all right, you minutes. Critter. I don't... Listen, I got... <laughs> Ren, start. There's a lot of places we can start. Ren, where where do you want to begin? I have never seen a game. That's not true. That was a. I've seen games that are this bad before, but I have never <laughs> seen a game. I've rare. I have so rarely see a game so obsessed with referencing its lineage f- for completely empty reasons. To like no. To like no signifier as to what the game you're actually going to be playing is. Right, like in the first opening 45 minutes of this game, you're in a boat. It is just doing the beginning to Bioshock Infinite. That is 100% what it is referencing in full. You can pull conversations from the people on the street and just put them into Bioshock Infinite, change three words, and you're golden. You are good. You go from this place. You go to get a glove from the doctor. The glove never shuts the fuck up. Your protagonist is quipping all the time. They, there's someone who cites, who, who references the numbers 0451 as a safe combination. This is not a game that uses safe combinations. There are not <laughs> safe combinations. This game is not mechanically in line with the immersive sim. It wishes it was, but it's not. It is not like mechanically or design-wise in conversation with those games. It is exclusively derivative of Bioshock, and as a second step away from the immersive sim genre, completely loses anything that Bioshock was actually like doing with that legacy. I think it uh. knows that though. Like this is direct. Like I don't. This is exactly what I expected from that original video, right? Like the game that has arrived in 2023 is what they promised in 2018, which is like. Do you like Bioshock? Do you want it or a different aesthetic? Are you expecting it's going to have the same, like, polished production of that? No. Would you just want to play one of those? I think there's a lot of people that would say yes. I think I'm probably in that group. I even agree with you. The writing is aggressively bad. Like, I've, like, I, I, there are a lot of problems with this game. And yet, I didn't play six hours because like, I need to for this podcast. I played six hours because... Shit, there's, like, just enough here that is, like, they won't make me another fucking Bioshock game. And so I guess I'll just play this because there's just an, I, I Sometimes I do like putting down, like, an electric attack and, like, combining that with, like, another elemental. <laughs> I do. I would like to do it aggressively at a C-plus average, but, um, you know, that's, that's what the tools I'm working with. See, but that's the thing is that, like, this is this is the difference between betwixt you and I, because, like, I, I see that shit at a C plus average and I'm like, damn, this is this is nothing to me. Like, the thing that gets me is like it knows what it is, though. I just don't think it's trying to hit above its it? weight. I think it knows exactly what it is. I think the, the, the writing maybe betrays that. But I think everything <laughs> mechanically about the game sort of knows what it is. And I don't think it's pretending it's anything above that. I think the, the showy, like visual stuff and writing really undermines what is otherwise like a pretty straightforward action game with some pretty set pieces and the rest of the stuff is really dragging that stuff down the narrative stuff drags down what is otherwise a pretty rote like interesting looking shooter um that feels edgelordy and shitty because of the exceptionally bad writing i i do think i do want to note that like two things that, that really stuck out to me while i was playing in terms of like making me think that they, this wants to be something slightly different than it is this game loves having you crawl through vents like, it understands the aesthetic image of having you crawl through vents. And, like, 
the fact that it gestures at alternative ways of problem solving in situations. Right. Like you can pick the lock or crawl through the vent. Uh, just like on Liberty Island. <laughs> just just uh, like on Liberty Island. Like but, this <laughs> but, but the thing is, but what I find so fascinating is you got the big old fucking vent in the wall, gaping hole in the wall. We got to splash some yellow paint on that because this is also a game in we live in a post uh, a, a post uh, Far Cry world. And so if we don't just splash some yellow paint here, how will you know uh, that this is interactable? This is a this is a passage. But also, like the, the thing that gets me is that there isn't two options. There is the illusion of multiple options of going through places like there are vent doors there are locked doors and there are regular doors. You're not going to circumvent like there is a the solution is always the intended solution. And like this extends to the gameplay stuff, too. And like this is part of why I've never vibed with like the I don't think I've ever vibed with like the Bioshock style shooter particularly well, because I think the thing that is like really interesting and I think Bioshock does this does this well at times. The thing that's really interesting about immersive sims and all these systems, right, is the emergent gameplay that happens between systems in the world and facilitating player expressivity right that is that is the thing to me and what the bioshock style shooter does is it keeps some of the idea of systemic interaction keeps that in there but then it puts all of those tools into the hand of the player like that is you are not like interacting with the world in this game to make cool elemental combos, right? That is not what I'm doing. I am spraying the do more elemental damage spell and then doing the I'm going to do a zap spell, right? Like that is that is what I'm doing, not any kind of like interacting with the world and oh. the levels that are there. You're not using the fall. Oh, man, like my favorite thing to do in this game is to so it has one of the base level powers you have is like this weird ass foam i guess the polymer no i'm using that it but is so i just went through a section where you're like filling up this tube because you gotta fill up like four tubes and the game loves to point out like isn't it silly we're doing four tubes and it's like okay you don't have to comment on the fact that it's silly we're doing the four tubes i still have to do it to accomplish the task in front of me but like it fills up you got to go in zap these fans keep them going and every time you do that you have these equivalent to that Enemy in Dead Space, Rob, that like it reanimates corpses. They have they have one of those here that goes through and turns them into these sort of like plant spore creatures. And every time you do that, you go out, you're zapping these fans, and then you have like 12 enemies chasing you because you really can't keep up with killing them. And so what I'm doing the entire time is I'm spraying the floor behind me and zapping it because you can imbue an elemental uh element to it and then you have like nine of these guys going while i'm running away zapping the next fan and i have found that stuff to be like fine i don't think it's as interesting as bioshock combat at its best i think the original bioshock has better combat than than infinite um but well here's here's what i would say like the, so the thing is, we're, we're, we're talking like this is a like a Soviet, like like Bioshock, but make it Soviet. But specifically, it is Bioshock Infinite, which is interesting because like Bioshock one, I, like I will still like I still really like that game. It has an incredible opening, some amazing set pieces. Bioshock two, they discovered more fun things to do in that game, right? Like yep. it, their their solution to like systemically, it's a little thin. What are we going to do? We're going to give you set piece like defense missions. Like how can mm-hmm. you now? you know, create, like shape the battlefield around you using your powers and the alternate fires on your weapons. How can you now like 
turn use utilize the space in light of your powers. That stuff was great. Bioshock Infinite sucked uh, because it like it was it was completely like just, it was a pure hallway game and the combat was not interesting. Uh, they didn't find an interesting hook in the combat. Nothing nothing worked like it was supposed to. If you're comparing this to Bioshock, like in a weird way, this ends up somewhere between like Bioshock 2 and Bioshock Infinite. This is a mm-hmm. better mm-hmm. Bioshock uh, Infinite, but it is an inferior Bioshock. So the thing I'll say, Patrick, is I also did that sequence. Uh, uh, I did that sequence on Tuesday. Uh, that was that was one of the the things that I was doing uh, before I uh, put the game down for uh, for a day or two. Right. I just I just finished that exact thing and I did exactly the same shit. And like that to me is. That to me suggests that. This is not just like. It is the illusion of player expressivity, right? We found the solution to that room, which is yeah. using the polymer to do to do crowd control. And like, yeah. I guess I just don't find that disappointing because I never expected this game to do anything more than that. Like when the next Bioshock comes out, like this team biting off this game, I was like, yeah, if you can get 70% of the way there, which is this is a game that is 70% of the way there, <laughs> fine. You know what I mean? Like I don't, I guess... I'm with you in that I wish their XYZ also was here. I wish the vents did anything. I wish that there was a meaningful reason to upgrade anything other than the electricity in like the like six hours that I've played. It really seems like it's just kind of overpowered and you can kind of spam these two things. I'm with you. Well, the other reason I you want to upgrade, of, who doesn't want to be sexually harassed by a vending machine? Oh, my <laughs> fucking God. Stupid goddamn writing. Um, this, so this is so there's a couple things here I want to I want to pull out one. I don't think I can over like it's such a maximalist Bioshock because like it is such a long opening sequence. So I'm in the middle of like mm-hmm. contractor chaos here. And like so midway through, like I had gotten to the building you're trying to get to through that long intro where you're going through this like uh, through the city, taking in all its wonders and like you get to a new location. And I'm like, I got called away and I was like, exit the game. Surely there will be an autosave. It picks up. <laughs> No. no so back through <laughs> we go and like now i'm speed running it like yep there's the saddle man at the uh eternal flame sorry about your friends i'm glad that i'm glad you beat the fascists or uh like didn't die from the brown plate cool bye uh <laughs> like you know here's a robot chattering at me and i'm like yeah okay i got it like my alternate vision great love to scan environments this is fun this implies a lot of things uh and race through that and it is just, and that keeps going. And then it's like, and now we're getting a flying car. And I'm like, oh, this is kind of cool. How long this is gonna? How long is this gonna go? Forever, or <laughs> yes. ever? Everything in this game is just like we can like make it longer and more grandiose. Right. That's the thing is that like the longness of everything, Patrick is like I I can't even get on board with like the roller coaster ride because like one I I. I I hate a boring game. I truly do. Like, that's the thing that gets me is if I, I love six, seven out of 10 games. Like <laughs> these are some of my favorite games. And like, this is like, Hey, we made. And also an ag- Patrick loves his Costco membership. <laughs> here's the thing. I also love six out of seven. Here's the thing I'm coming. Here's the thing I'm realizing, Patrick. I think I also love six out of seven, like six to seven out of 10 games. We just like different six to seven out of sure, ten. That's the nature. That, that's the nature of the six to seven. Like right. the game has to speak to you on some level, where it just seems like th- this is not the case. Well, and that's uh, the, for like, for you. The minute this game starts speaking, 
Like I have, so I knew like yeah, the can't minute defend this one. on the loading screen, the minute <laughs> I saw the fucking protagonist with his like, uh, like ponytail side buzz cut type thing. I was like, th- like this is a game that thinks the side buzz cut and undercut are the coolest things in history. And like good people do that. And everyone else is a drone. Like the world, like the world is divided between people who are like, yes, I am just a red army soldier. Soon I will be nothing but a meat prop uh, suspended from the ceiling by like a electromechanical noose. And then it's like, I'm a plucky hero. Aren't I cool? And the writing lived up to that intuition because the minute P3 starts talking to Charles, his, his glove, uh, cause we all like, uh, you know, the, the voice of the suit and Iron Man. Who doesn't love, love that guy? I love uh, imagine Jarvis. Jarvis, yeah. So the minute, or, like... Oh, who was it in fucking uh, Halo? Cortana? Cortana? No, no, no. The new one. Wasn't there a butler? The weapon. Oh, right, right. Wasn't Are you there... talking about the weapon? Was it the weapon? <laughs> That's her name. No, no, there was a butler for like a hot second. Is that just in multiplayer? Am I fucking up? There's a butler. What the fuck? I I love. You you remember the butler? Cut cut up, cut up. The British butler voice. The British butler voice. That almost sounds exactly the glove. It might be the multiplayer announcer that I'm thinking of. What are you talking about? I love the scene where Master Chief gets the shotgun on a solver. Uh, So (laughs) the minute. Like this dude started talking though. I was like, I hate Uh-oh. this guy. Yeah. Like aggressively unpleasant. Like he's an asshole to everybody, but it's not funny. Like it is one of the most charmless protagonists you can imagine. And they keep foregrounding him. Like you start to understand why the dude in Bioshock never speaks. That can be a really <laughs> smart decision because like you're going to have to really like the person you're like instantiating if they're constantly yammering. And I hate P3. He sucks. And also, but here's the thing. It's not Bioshock. It is Bioshock. You know who else never shuts the fuck up? Booker DeWitt. Booker DeWitt will will not cease and neither will P3. That's a writing thing, though. I think I just I think this I don't think there's anything inherent to like a first person protagonist being chattery um, that I think can undercut the experience. I do think anything this this game on the extreme end underscores what is writing? What is writing going to do? To the experience, because this game would be, it doesn't solve a lot of the issues that it has if the character just stops talking and it's all experienced through the text files and the audio stuff. Uh, even though I, I think at this point, at the, the point I met in the game, almost nothing has been added, like, meaningfully from the interactions between these the glove and my main character. Like, I could have picked up on everything that they are just talking out loud by observing it in in the world because the game is doing the thing that Bioshock always does is like here are a lot of elaborate detailed like environments for you to like poke at and like figure out like I wonder what they were doing in this lab but the characters here are also telling you what happened in the you have a character who is wondering what happened in the lab and then a glove who is going to tell you this is what happened in the lab and then you're going to find voice files about people who are in the lab and then you're also going to find computers with text files that are going to explain to you what was in the lab butler b-u-t-l-r so this is is this the multiplayer thing it's the multiplayer that's total but i think it's the same it might be same or similar voice actor to the glove that's why it immediately came to my head um Mm. but yeah butler is a one of the choice i think it's the default choice when you go into the the multiplayer yeah 
uh, in Halo Infinite. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, this game is not saved by better writing, but it is it is sunk, especially up front. Like it makes far and away one of the worst first impressions uh, I have seen. If you are taken by the aesthetic and the, the very long swoop through of a world, like the moment this character starts chattering, like it just starts sucking the soul out of you. And it's just a real testament to like how hard to do this stuff is to do in games. But the choice they made was to do it poorly and all the time, which is a really toxic combination. I, I would like to, one of the things that this made me think of was, um, you know, Austin uh, was like, did like a blog post about Forspoken a little bit ago. And like, I, I ended up like falling in the exact same place uh, that he did, which is that like, I just want bitches to take the world there in seriously. Like, I, I think that this is just style of right, even if it was executed perfectly. If we were talking the version of this game where P3 is the funniest motherfucker I have ever heard, uh, and his interactions with Charles are are god tier, right? I just want them to take the world seriously. So the thing the thing that occurs to me with this stuff, because yeah, like whenever the protagonist is constantly like, I am so unimpressed. This just bores the shit out of me. And it's like, then you're an asshole. Like, are you kidding me? You're in a flying fucking city where like <laughs> everyone can like control machines with their mind. And like, what is wrong with you? You fucking dick. But the other thing that occurs to me is like, I think about a book like Connecticut Yankee and King Arthur's court, which is Mark Twain, basically writing Arthurian fan fiction about like a civil war, post-civil war era American winding up in the court of King Arthur. And that seems like it would be a comedy, right? That seems like it would be a hundred percent like, ha ha ha. wasn't the past goofy and weird. And what a, what a weird fish out of water story, but it actually takes it very, very seriously. Uh, and it like, it's still witty and it like is still like subverting Arthurian legend, but in a way that also at no point Tate like tries to diminish uh, like the, the material it's working with. And here having done all this like place setting, the game's primary narrator keeps shitting all over it. And so if, and that becomes another problem because he's also, they try to simultaneously position him as a true believer, like the uh, the visionary who is running the city is the person who's called you in here. And like P3 is supposedly uh, we won't even get to the landmines. They're clearly planting around P3 uh, and yeah. why your guys called P3. But he is supposedly like fiercely loyal to this one guy and his project. He so calls him his dad. He goes around being like, he's like my father. Like, yeah. I consider him my father, like all the time. Right. And so, like, on the one hand, he's completely, like, completely loyal and bought into the guy and to the project. And on the other hand, he's like, this place sucks. I hate it. What's this dumb little robot talking to me about? And then there's the combat. And I think this is the other part that, like, it is not working for me is there's a lot of combat here. And I feel like I am trying to, like, you get an axe, right? That's your equivalent mm. of the crowbar. Feels like I'm trying to kill robots with a pool noodle. Uh, you get a big old honking shotgun. The game doesn't tell you uh, you got a shotgun. I just brought up, brought up the weapon wheel at one point, and it's like there's a shotgun here. I'm like, when did I get a shotgun? I've always had a shotgun. Doesn't feel like... It does occasionally like do knockback, but, like, nothing feels particularly, like 
strong or powerful. So like combat's combat's a little grindy. Like there's a lot of hits you gotta land here. And I'm not having fun with it because it's like it's kind of just like a little fence you gotta scale. But they're not fun to beat up on. I haven't found like cool robots that I'm like, wow, that was a what a what a fun encounter that was. Rob, I have a question. Yeah. What what difficulty are you playing on? Uh the middle. Okay. Patrick? I always just play the developer recommended. Okay. Got it. I've been playing the game on hard. Uh uh, because I I default to hard until I decide like oh yeah because yeah, yeah. I want to like have to fuck with the systems right like that is the way I play games is like I want to be forced to engage with everything that is there. Um, uh, I think the enemies are two bullet sponge. Like I've I've talked to people who are playing on easy. Uh, uh, you know the person who edited the piece I just put out, uh, Jordan, uh, over at Motherboard was talking, and he's playing on easy, and he's like, yeah, I put a lot of bullets into guys, and they just don't go down and like this is again this is down to like personal taste and preference i like guns in games to feel snappy i would like to put a bullet in a thing and have it drop and if a bullet goes into me i would like to drop i recognize this but even setting aside taste i think that this is a poorly executed version of the thing it is because it is trying to simultaneously like encourage you to conserve ammo because you have to like you know finding ammo in the world is pretty limited so instead you have to spend your resources making it while also giving you melee you weapons you get so that. many resources though i wonder how that's different on hard like you're never worried about ammo or yeah crafting. so hang on so the game again it's like what if an immersive sim but like instead of checking cupboards you just vacuumed everything out of the ether to get material when i walk into a typical office room for instance the way it works is the game tells you press f and your character just sucks all the ammo and shit like in the various cupboards into their hand for me i get like a bunch of like crafting material every time i do that like every room is like here's a bunch of shit for you oh i get a i get a bunch but also enemies take a lot of fucking bullets Right, like if if I only have because the the thing that that you know stops you is there's the I think it's like called chemicals or something. There's some uh, inventory thing that is like slightly rarer than other stuff that is required to make any bullet. Uh, if you want to make a bullet, it takes one of those. And if I only have ten of those on me, and it takes yeah six pistol shots or you know three shotgun shells to kill an enemy. And that, like, isn't a fun process of, like, having to kite and kill that enemy, uh, even if I'm using my abilities properly, right? I am I am playing the game as is, as intended and using all of, like, my magical powers to fuck these guys up. I am, I am doing in the work. I am putting in the hours. Uh, and it just, the problem isn't that it's difficult. It's that it's boring. And, like, everything takes, like, 30 seconds longer than I want it to. All combat encounters are, it's the thing, same thing Patrick was saying earlier. Everything in this game is a little bit too long to me. Yeah, that's about where I'm at with the combat. And I think it also goes to a, um, even though they try to create a little more like systemically interesting, or at least like make the enemies a bit more challenging, like they also have knockdown moves uh, a lot. There's a little, there's a little more like trying to maneuver around them. The dodge uh, is, is an interesting addition. Yeah. That, I, I don't you know. You can, uh, you, I'd like in theory, I don't really, it doesn't feel great to me. Um, but the, like the, the, I guess the thing that is 
not landing or it's or it's a problem across the board with the game for as like good as the visuals are and it, the visuals are incredible like, i was shocked how beautiful this game was and how well mm-hmm. it was running at the outset like i was like this yeah. is it runs really great on a steam deck and shocking. that tells you a lot about like this like, hey shout out to this game by the way very specifically this is a small thing but when you start the game up on pc anyway there has been an uh an epidemic of shader issues in pc games in the last couple of years that i don't know what is the actual technical reason but it has caused a lot of stuttering and frequently what happens in a lot of pc games is you have to play the game long enough for just like your pc to like do its thing to eat its vegetables and then the game runs uh better uh over time this game says you could start playing but right in the main menu the first time you're at the main menu it says can we just load these shaders there's a bar at the top yep and it takes like an extra five minutes it, it, but then once you've done that, the game so runs smooth. buttery smooth, but, like runs excellent. But as good as the visuals are, like the minute stuff started happening, uh, the sound mix sucks. Like weapons have no real presence in the mix. Like you're like dialogues really like really loud, but like there's no dynamic range. So like you fire off a gun and it's less loud than people just talking. And like you can change the mix yourself a little bit, but like that's not going to solve the dynamic range issue where everything's just really flat and level. So nothing like really has any sense of punch or heft. And that extends into, to me at least, like the animations. Like they have yes. tried to give you the sense of like when you land an axe hit on a robot, you, you see a, you sort of cleaved a uh, like divot in the, in the robot chassis. But Bioshock was actually very good at. Like when you hit a splicer hard, like that fucker dropped. You know what I mean? Like like Bioshock had a lot of different ways to like signal and cue uh, that you were just laying people the fuck out. And like that wrench, when it connected, it it sounded awful. Yeah. And nothing in this game has that sense of like, I got you. Yeah. Tagged him. And that's going to be a problem in an action shooter. Yeah. There's a problem for a game. I, th- I think one of the biggest problems this game has is that it has these aesthetic trappings of a game that the gameplay part doesn't match, right? Like, it has the aesthetics that it feels like I'm playing Bioshock but Soviet and has sort of, like, the spectacle to match that, but not the underlying design that comes along for that for that ride. And one of the things that, like, crystallized, and I think maybe one of the reasons I'm a little higher on this than y'all is like when I realized who was publishing this over here is my boys over at focus home. Mm. Now I want to list some of the games that focus home interactive publishes the focus home. Difference. Going back to going back the oh, focus home. They make game. They publish games that a lot of people are going to think are like a six or a seven. But one of these, one of the ones we make for you is going to speak to you. And there are one of, there is one for everybody on this call. Vampire, my God, one of my favorites. Ah, <laughs> don't nod. Making an overambitious social vampire RPG with very middling combat and social systems that don't quite work. But damn, I admire the ambition. Uh a little game called it. Um, uh, uh, a Plague Tale. Like, ooh, like a story that is like just story, bad, shitty stealth combat, but a lot of <laughs> melodrama. Like, I'm here for it. 
Uh, Necromunda, un- wait, is that, what, what was the one that Austin really, Necromunda yeah. Hired Gun, a game with like interesting swinging mechanics, but not much else about that game works. What is the one, um, oh, where is it? Uh, Greedfall. Mmm, that game's got some problems, <laughs> but it's a big old RPG and a unique setting. Uh, oh, what was the one I was looking for? Shit. Shit. Fucking Aliens Fireteam Elite? That's not what <laughs> I was going to say. Shipbreaker. No, it's further back. Where are you? The Surge. The, the surge. surge is also here. And Ren loves the Surge. surge. Uh, <laughs> Evil West, a PS2-esque action game that I didn't get around to last year that everyone really liked that likes PS2-esque action games. And all just to say, again, like I, I broadly agree with everything that has been said. But then when I saw the focus home difference, when I saw the focus that this is a this is a home for us, it sort of spoke to me as like this game is going to be really pretty and like aggressively middling everywhere else. And then the question for you, the player is, is there something here that's going to drag you through? And for a lot of those games that I listed, there there is something like for for someone that, that finds that appealing. And if it's not there for you. There's, it's there's not much here, I, and I and I think that is the case with Atomic Heart as well. I I will say, I don't think a lot of the shit that Focus Home publishes is middling. I actually think they have some real like total. I love bangers most of their games. What I'm what I'm saying is they have a very specific sort of like design aesthetic in Do terms they? of their ambition, budget. Yes, I think there's a through line between a lot of the games that they published. Even I'm not saying that like there's a commonality in like design approach, but I think there is a we are a like. B level publisher that makes games that attracts like that are sco- like scoped appropriately, like have modest ambitions and know an audience. And those are the games that they publish. There's a reason they publish a bunch of Warhammer games, right? Like they're just a smart publisher and this game doesn't need to sell a bajillion copies to turn a profit. I'm just saying like they, they know what they're doing. I'm a big fan. <laughs> uh, I will also just note, I no longer, I have no idea what graphic settings are doing anymore. Just zero. I love that no, this no, game is cool. like, no. do you want it in high, medium, or do you want it in atomic? Atomic. It defaults to atomic. <laughs> and atomic doesn't seem like, like I can't tell which like uh, AI rendering tech it is using. A bunch of the options like for NVIDIA stuff are actually grayed out on atomic, but there's no way this is, this is native, but like, it's doing something like procedurally there because uh, like you get stuff like this where let's see if this goes through uh, in like areas where there's like shadows on a texture, right? Uh, if you like zoom in on the shadows around like the feet of the chairs, like you get a weird screen door effect in a lot of the shadowing, which is what I associate now with like these sort of uh, like, AI finished renders or AI assisted like rendering technologies that crop up like consistently in these spaces. And it's weird. Like maybe this is the price <laughs> of having a game generally look this good and run this smoothly. But then there's like all these weird little artifacts that didn't used to be in games that now I just see constantly that are just like weird, weirdly noisy. Uh, and I don't know where it's coming from because I don't know what atomic mode is doing. <laughs> Uh, broadly it keeps the frame rate pretty high and you know the action pretty smooth so you know mostly job well done but again there's just little places where it's like at first I'm like is this just kind of a shitty texture and then I'm like I don't think it is I think it's something about the way the render is being generated but 
this is that's a broader point about just like how completely baffled I am now when I go into graphic settings pages and it's just like and naming it atomic just straight up does not help it's like uh you know you like is atomic higher than high it feels like it should be the good one but also it's disabling a lot of like supposedly the signature features of modern uh cards so I have no idea but uh we'll probably end up playing a bit more of this um you know I think we're, we'll we'll see a bit more of how it unfolds at least Patrick is Patrick is all in uh, I'll check. Yeah, Patrick I'll check and his game, boy P3 are going to get to the bottom <laughs> of. I kind of got to know, right? Like, yeah, you got to fight those crispy critters. Oh, yeah, I was just into the section where that happened like four times. Uh, th- there is something. It, th- yeah, there, there is just enough here. And then also there is the sort of car crash appeal of like, I got to know what's on the other side of this. Also, this game was like pissed. Just like, what if Bioshock were like a big world? I'm like, six hours in, I'm just in corridors. I, I know there's a world out there. I've read about it and have not seen any evidence of it quite yet. Damn, I got to get to that middling open world. I got I to gotta, I gotta get my feet wet. Yeah. Let me get knees deep in this mud. Ooh, yummy. Uh. Well, we are going to take a quick break here uh, as we step away from Atomic Heart, and we will be back uh, after the break. But remember, Waypoint Plus listeners get this podcast ad-free. Learn more at waypointplus.com and see how you can fill this break with nothing but cool tunes, courtesy of Kata. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. And we're back. Uh, We're going to dig into some news here. Uh, So, Patrick... The maneuvering around the Microsoft acquisition of Activision has continued in this last week with Microsoft signing agreements uh, with major firms to assuage regulators' fears, uh, it seems, broadly. What uh, deals have they have they announced? Uh, well, they're waving a paper around that says this is an agreement Sony could sign if they'd be <laughs> – if they would if be only interested, Sony would sign it. Uh, <laughs> yeah, like as the, the Microsoft went in front of uh, a European regulator board to essentially kind of plead its case. This is following uh, some recommendations from European regulators that were like, "Well, like, what if, uh, what if you just like got rid of the Call of Duty part, just like sold it, like spun it off? Then I guess you could acquire Activision Blizzard. <laughs> like, that's not a remedy that uh, act that Microsoft is probably interested in. And so we're not privy to." The behind the scenes like sort of presentation that happened but microsoft gave like a post presentation presentation um one of which coincided with announcements with nvidia where they, they promised it's a little wishy-washy on like what they're promising exactly in terms of what games will appear but like broadly speaking it uh well they're specific in with nintendo and that nintendo has signed a 
agreement in which Microsoft committed to 10 years of Call of Duty for a platform that hasn't had oh, Call of yeah. Duty and Incredible. cannot cannot currently run any of the Call of Duty games. So either we are going to exist in a world where they're going to make spinoffs, which is where we were in like the Wii era, right? The GameCube era. Maybe not the GameCube era, but like the Wii era of like, we can't run these games on the Wii hardware. If we'll make unique ones, like maybe they'll do that. Yeah, or they're hoping the, they're hoping the, they'll probably do cloud stuff. I don't know. But like they're committing to release Call of Duty games on a platform that does not give a shit about games like that. And that's not why it's popular. Uh, a little more notable is signing a deal with NVIDIA because one of the things the regulators have brought up is, hey, Microsoft is really pushing into cloud gaming and might be one of the only companies that could like live through the process of the technological sort of evolution of that. And maybe they just end up being the only place to go for cloud gaming. Um, and if they're buying so many companies that all the games would just, quote, exist there. Uh, so like promising the Call of Duty or other Xbox games would show up on NVIDIA's service, which is a pretty good service. Like if you have not used NVIDIA's uh, service, like especially if you pay a little extra to get access to, you want to live that 4080 lifestyle, like you can, you know, again, it's cloud, but if you have hardwired ethernet or like a really good Wi-Fi connection near your router, it's shocking what you can do with some of that NVIDIA stuff under the right circumstances and the right games. And so, you know, NVIDIA dropped, they were originally uh, telling uh, regulators, they were opposed to the acquisition and now have like withdrawn um, all along, uh, you know, uh, like different un- like labor groups have they've all been championing the deal because they've enjoyed the fact that Microsoft has been weirdly pro union uh, or at least union neutral <laughs> during during this process. And that continues up to this point. But uh, that is kind of where we're we're at here. But we're absent the major the biggest player of all, which is Sony. Sony is is so far declined to agree to a deal uh, with Microsoft, uh, it, it, perhaps in the hopes that the deal will fall apart. Um, Sony does seem to, you know, run some risk here of by not signing a deal, they seem to put themselves in a position where Microsoft would not have to be especially kind to them. Uh, you know, I don't think they would go as far as removing Call of Duty from PlayStation. But, you know, at some point there must come uh, a situation where Sony would rather sign a deal and watch the deal go through rather than not sign a deal and then begin negotiating with Microsoft. Um, and also, if the deal falls through, is Activision going to be in a position where they're going to want to offer Sony incredibly kind terms uh, as a result of Sony specifically killing the thing that was going to save the company? Like, one of the details that came out recently was that Sony is not, uh, for the Call of Duty stuff specifically, is not doing, like, the same uh, financial splits, like the 70-30 stuff that we usually see across platforms, you know, like... There are like special, you know, sweetheart deals in place. Not shocking. That stuff exists everywhere, including on Apple's own ecosystem. But yeah, I don't know that it leaves us necessarily with an understanding one way or the other where this deal is going to end up, except that a bunch of wheels keep spinning. Um, If you believe the analysts who talk about stuff like this kind of across the spectrum, they still think it's going to happen. But there's a whole lot of hand wringing happening along the way. Yeah, it's it's also just in a weird place where you end up in this. Like you start seeing other big firms who may also be operating in markets that have overly consolidated suddenly being like, hey, thumbs up to this regulators <laughs> like we support it. Like, like, I don't know. Like, I don't know what percentage like my suspicion is compared to NVIDIA's core business. GeForce is cute. Uh, GeForce, yeah. GeForce now is cute. That's a yeah. it's a cool little initiative that leverages some of our existing strengths. And maybe they have plans like bigger plans for it in the future. They certainly are pushing it uh, pretty aggressively. But like 
fundamentally they are one of two firms that dominate uh the like graphics card uh market and not just consumer graphics cards but also like the like huge like f- like far like farm system uh like cards that you see going into cloud streaming uh setups like uh, i forget like amd's version is called like the threadripper Mm-hmm. Uh, like uh, run run of cards, so like you end up in a weird place where Nvidia is signing off on like we are not threatened uh, by you know what Microsoft may or may not do with regard to uh, like game streaming, but also that is not fundamentally the business they are in. It is a, it is a sideline, but it is like fundamentally this is a company that has other like interests uh, I- involved, and so things like this like guarantees like this in their word. Uh, you know, certainly it's, it's sort of an odd mode. Like to a degree, this is all like trying to shape opinion around the decision regulators will arrive at where it's like, how scary could this merger be if so many other companies are for it, (laughs) but, but what are their motivations for being for it? (laughs) And ultimately maybe it shouldn't even matter. You know, it's, it's like, you know, if, uh, you know, if, a bunch of uh, if a bunch of wolves are like we're pretty confident we can divide the sheet uh, effectively. <laughs> like I don't know that it's still going to weigh in on uh, I don't know, that that should still weigh in on regulars regulators decisions. Now historically it has been very deferential to industry, but I don't know. Uh, it is like the these things are kind of a transparent sop uh, being thrown. And the other thing is, ten years sounds like a long time, but as we've noted increasingly on this podcast, like you know these great like the years roll by fast uh, when it comes to agreements like this, like that is not too many like product cycles away before those agreements are gone and Microsoft can kind of do what it likes. Um, So that's a, it's, it's something, it's certainly an interesting twist uh, to all of this. Speaking of interesting twists, uh, Patrick, I saw you had a note here about Sega, Nintendo and Capcom all giving people raises. Yeah, uh, this is a, an article from PC Gamer. Uh, Sega has announced that its current Japan-based staff are set to get a monthly pay bump in a move likely spurred by surging inflation and similar pay increases at Sega's Japanese competitors. In a press release last Friday, Sega said that starting July 1st, it, quote, plans to increase the average monthly salary of existing employees by approximately 30%. Um, yeah, this this comes after Capcom and Nintendo did similar measures. Nintendo has historically been, like, noteworthy conservative when it comes to uh, even times when the company is in financial dire straits, like, you know, in the Wii U era, um, in which most companies or certainly companies that we're all familiar with and talking about on this show, the reaction to a bad economic swing that had nothing to do with the workers who did the work involved is to <laughs> shove them out into the street uh, or or like demand pay cuts or, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and Nintendo has historically bucked that trend by, like in this case, either paying people more or specifically coming out and saying we're not going to lay people off because we need these people to figure out how we're going to get to the other other side of it. And so, uh, you know, I think it was, you know, Capcom and Sega following through may just be reflective of a competitive trend, but it is a, com- well, a competitive trend that is at least worth noting. There's a weird thing here, too, where so like this is broadly like a best understood in the context of just a broader thing that's happening uh, across like Japanese industry. Uh, Toyota also announced that they're like giving a huge wage hike. Uh, I, I think to workers in Japan, I don't know if it's a, 
I don't think it is an international uh, thing. I think it is like targeted at their workforce in Japan. And part of this is being driven by uh, the fact that the Japanese uh, prime minister has been like calling on Hmm. businesses to uh, help workers deal with the inflation by giving uh, significant salary bumps and industries are responding to that, which is like, this is a place where I don't under, I don't understand how that works because <laughs> like in the, here in the good old U S of a, if you have a politician be like, I call on this company to give workers a fair deal and they should give raises uh, companies generally are like, ha ha ha, fuck you. And then they fire a bunch of people. And so it's I don't understand, like, if there's a stick here in place where if like the if the government is there's a threat of some sort of regulation that we don't understand. Right. Or if this is just like part of like a weird tacit custom that exists in the like corporate governance model of Japan uh, that isn't like doesn't have a parallel here. I don't know. But like. All of this is happening in this backdrop of the government has made a policy issue out of Japanese workers should be paid more. And a lot of major Japanese firms are saying, "Okay, here are some raises. If yeah, I'm equally uh, befuddled. I'm sure there are people who listen to this podcast. Please write in. I I, I genuinely would like to know, is there a cultural context, a political context that we're missing um, that is I'm not necessarily trying to suggest, like, tell me the insidious part of this that we don't that would like fulfill my cynical fantasy, but it's more, I would just be curious to know, I have a better understanding of why, like, like as Rob said, why can you just make a reasonable request of corporations? And then a bunch of them go, yeah, all right. Like we should pay people more. Like games have made a lot of money the last couple of years. Yeah. It's, it is so foreign uh, to anything, (laughs) any of my experience. Uh, so I have been uh, returning games here for a bit. Uh, I have been fully on my bullshit for the last week. I've been playing Ooh. a lot of Company of Heroes 3, uh, which is Relic's latest entry in the RTS series. And, you know, you read my review on uh, waypoint.vice.com. Uh, the thing I would like, the big takeaway kind of is that Company of Heroes at least in its at the start, I would say it was kind of a revolutionary RTS like series. Like there were not like compared to what came before company of heroes was a much more like cinematic and much more tactically intricate, uh, art, like version of a real time strategy game compared to what you might see in like command and conquer for instance which was about build big armies hurl them at the other guy and yeah, correct me if i'm wrong but like i remember like my first blush with this series was like listening to like jeff green sean elliott lose their shit about it in their early in like i don't know if that was the gfw or computer gaming world era but but like and the way they described it in my memory is like oh my god like you get to sit and have like you're you're in charge of like individual squads that are having individual drama and like the like the kind of like cinematic nature beyond just like the the incredible visuals for the time were that hey like these little squads of soldiers are going to have adventures that feel so different and much more intimate than just drag across the screen like grab all units maybe you go as far as to split them into like squads and and like flank someone but there was just an there was like if i picked one word it was intimacy and there yeah. was an intimacy to company of heroes that was lacking in a lot of the RTS games that defined 
like the late nineties, you know, early two thousands. Yeah. And that extends to stuff like what's, what's funny is kind of, it was kind of deceptive because in some ways it looked like it was so tactical and there's so much micromanagement in that game, but also it was fairly lightweight. So for instance, if you think about a game like Starcraft or something, there's, there's a lot of nuance to that game, but making armies operate that way is really hard, right? There's a lot of friction in making them do the thing that conceptually is very simple, right? I want these guys to be a meat shield in the front and these guys will become like casting spells behind them. And that's how we're going to carry out this attack. That is simple enough to describe. And it's very hard to execute in uh, like in Starcraft company of heroes was really interesting because like, for instance, if you saw a piece of cover, like a sandbag wall or like a burned out car in the street and you would hover your mouse over it and you'd see like green pips uh, form behind it. That indicated that if infantry took that position, they would be in good cover and they would be more resistant to damage. And so by some lights, it was a fair amount of micro, but by some others, it's really easy, right? You go here, you step into the magic cover area and now I can like forget about you for a minute and go tend to some other things because as long as you're in cover, you're, you're probably going to be fine. And so like that series comes out and that's that's kind of a uh, sea change moment for the genre in in some ways. But of course, the genre itself is, is kind of declining, right? Like a lot of the games that it is uh, would have been contrasted with when Company of Heroes starts have kind of since become defunct uh, or, you know, uh, have really shrunk in terms of uh, market. And now I guess what company of heroes three has like really based its pitch on, you know, we talked a bit about this on waypoint radio. I think when I did like the first alpha preview series for it, they were trying to, they were trying pretty explicitly to court people who have bounced off RTS games, uh, maybe historically or in recent years. And they had a couple solutions for that. One is that, a lot of people who might otherwise like the idea of playing an RTS game do find them really stressful and also really frustrating in terms of even with the aids company of heroes gives you the pace at which it unfolds. It's real easy to feel like you are moving too fast to really make use of all the things the game could let you do. And so what they introduced was a uh, possible combat. Uh, so, you know, it's like in like in a lot of RPG systems or something like at any point you hit space, the action freezes and you can just like first you can just sort of look around, like see what sort of cool things are happening in your match. But also you can go around all your units and give them orders and you see like the lines drop like a little football play. And once you hit space to unpause, your units will go carry out those moves. And so if you want, you can effectively turn this into a turn based game. And I will say like that part broad, like that part broadly works. I didn't need to use it that much, but maybe I'll play around with it a bit more when I stream it, uh, which there should be a VOD up hopefully by the time you're listening to this. Uh, but that that kind of works. It's it's nifty. Uh, it's, it's, it's a cool thought. But the other thing that was really sort of a marquee feature here was they were doing something like a Total War campaign. Or at least it seemed like it was going to be a Total War campaign where the setting for Company of Heroes 3 is the uh invade the the invasion of italy and that is you know the game begins it's fundamentally inspired by like band of brothers and saving private ryan it's all the normandy campaign stuff company of heroes 2 is the eastern front overly inspired by enemy at the gates uh it's it's very it's 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 very uh like 
you know, people doing weird Russian accents and uh, a, a whole lot of like Eastern Front uh, like mythology. And then this this third game is going to a place where I think there has not been a lot of attention given to it in popular media. Uh, but the sort of salient features of the Italian campaign was it was sort of a slog up a mountainous peninsula. And like the Germans tend to be dug in well and it was real hard to blast them out, uh, but blast them out, they, the, the Allies did. And the way that's rendered here is that you get a like Total War style or like Risk style map where, you know, you land your first forces, uh, you know, in Italy. And then what you see is a map painted uh, red uh, with, uh, you know, German territory. And there's all these little villages in the center of each territory. And you send out your companies uh, to go liberate these villages and take their resources uh which you can use to call in superpowers or like fresh reinforcements so the campaign escalates as you as you uh color in more of the map and and liberate more of italy the the pitch and certainly implies this is going to happen is that there's lots of things you can do you can build like fortifications on strategic maps so if a a German like panzer unit tries to get to you and it's coming down a road covered by an anti-tank gun. It takes some damage, which will somehow affect the RTS battle you fight against that company on the tactical layer. But in practice, none of the stuff like seems to work. Uh, the campaign is really inert. Like it does not appear to have any sort of proactive AI opponent that is doing anything like, you have to worry about fortifications because the map is seeded with them, but there's really not much point in you building them because like the German forces don't really move. So you just go from town to town, you fight a battle, liberate it, and you just do that all the way up the, all the way up the peninsula. And that's really disappointing. Like this, this entire like meta game structure that seemed like such a key part of the pitch doesn't really work and certainly it it certainly doesn't work at all like a total war game it certainly doesn't have any of the things that make the campaign layer of a total war game uh cool but the thing that they've done you know to sort of hedge their bets is a lot of locations have special missions associated with them they're basically your classic rts campaign mission like something a lot more authored a lot more scripted uh that you will go do and historically company of heroes has been very good at these sorts of missions what do you know they're still great at them. <laughs> like these missions are terrific, uh, but then they also really do shine a light on how weak the, uh, you know, for lack of a better word, like the, the procedurally generated battles are, which is basically mm-hmm. like every time you fight a random battle against a uh, like German unit that you just find out in a field somewhere, what you go to is a skirmish map and you just play a little like, what would be a skirmish mode in the, you go to the multiplayer mode and you just play against uh, the, the CPU. And that's basically what you're doing for a lot of this campaign. And those battles are okay. The AI doesn't fight the special conditions uh, that pop up very well. It doesn't understand the victory conditions uh, all the time. And so you got a lot of these missions that are kind of rote, but then you go to these like authored missions and it's like, holy shit, this is, incredibly tough like so, like some of this is like series high maybe genre high in terms of like mission structure and design and you know you're kind of i, I kind of come away thinking like 
I might have preferred a little more killer to the filler uh, in this. Like the ratio's really off when it comes to the campaign specifically. And that's uh, that's a huge disappointment, but I kind of end up in a weird place with this because like the big new feature doesn't work. It's a huge disappointment, but it's a really good company of heroes game. And it has like a lot of the highlights that you would want from a really good company of heroes game. So I, you know what I mean? It's like in some ways, like, can you just kind of ignore the stuff like the stuff that doesn't work? Can you kind of just like, eh, like just get to the, to the, you know, cause you like frequently when games add these sort of layers that don't work, if you're just trying to get to the stuff that you like, these scripted, you know, or more directed authored missions, can you kind of just hustle to those? Or is that at your peril to ignore how much can you ignore of the cruff that, that doesn't work? Uh, you kind of got to, the game makes you deal with it. Like if you go okay. to a town to like liberate it and you get a skirmish map, you have to play it. Now, if you're randomly attacked, like as, as you're moving between towns that you can auto resolve. And if your company's like at full strength and it's got a lot of experience, you can just auto resolve and like you just watch the German company effectively bounce off you and explode. And then you continue on your merry way. Uh, so you can ignore some of it, but like you're like they make it is not optional that you'll be dealing with a lot of cruft. You don't you can still skip a fair bit of it, but like there's going to be I would say it is like it is probably a 50 50 ratio, maybe 60 40 in favor Oof. of uh like sometimes pleasant but nevertheless forgettable like skirmish missions. And then just these absolutely like memorable uh, like white knuckle missions uh, that like clearly the mission designers like really lavished a lot of attention on. And like they have an entire arc and structure to them that the random battles just do not. And so like that's that's kind of the weird thing is like. You can. To, I played like I played like coming up on 50 hours of this to it. Like I've clearly enjoyed the game quite a bit. I'm playing skirmishes <laughs> like you can sort of just like focus on the stuff that you love. You, you can do that, but you are also still getting a lot of like watered down company of heroes in this campaign that you can only ignore up to a point is how long has it been since company of heroes Two? God, I think it's been like nine years. So, okay. You're a veteran, right? You played all these games, yeah. you have hundreds of hours logged. I do wonder, is some of what you're experiencing the result of I have played hundreds of hours of these games? And if the pitch for three is trying to, like, cater to folks like yourself, but also, you know, trying to bring in newcomers, I wonder if those skirmishes feel fresher to somebody that is new to the series. Now, granted, there's a three. So it's like, you know, like there there is certain some inherent uh, yeah. uh, baggage with that. But I, I wonder to someone who doesn't have that and is coming to the series for the first time how much that feels like cruff or, or how much that's inherent to like just a, a boring meta layer. Um, the, which is a kind of a common criticism I've seen in the reviews of the game. The other thing that I'm, that I'm looking at here is that like, I'm looking at the, the steam reviews. The people seem pretty not thrilled about it. Have you like, see what is the, the, the broad reaction seems to be that it's a downgrade from company of heroes too. Like it is, it, does that resonate with how you feel about it or. No. So that's a, that's a funny thing. Uh, if that is happening, then that just shows you how this stuff always comes for full cycle or, or mm-hmm. full circle. Uh, because 
Company of Heroes 2 was the downgrade. Like, <laughs> and I liked it, but there were people who were furious at that because it broke from, like, Company of Heroes 2 had the most adorable, like, how do we capture the Eastern Front? What's the signature feature mm. of the Eastern Front? Winter. Fighting in the fighting in those in those harsh uh Russian winters, the 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 force that uh really you know brought the brought the Third Reich to its knees uh was 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 winters. How are we going to bring that across? Well, each map is gonna have a a regular version and a winter version of itself. And on the winter versions, uh on re- regular intervals, you'll get like a frost punk, like, oh boy, here comes a blizzard, comrades, take shelter. <laughs> and so you would have to like run your vehicles and troops over to like things you you build like burning oil drums and shit to like have your infantry hang out and like oof, pretty cold, huh? Uh, <laughs> Is the meter filling up? Uh, it's not filling up. It just starts to to diminish. You're you're you start taking health damage as you like move mm. away from the warm uh, in okay. the winter. But you could like push the attack through the cold uh you know if you wanted to because i bet nobody's expecting that and that was their that, like, that was kind of their big idea for comedy of heroes 2 and people hated that people were like what on earth are you thinking because it completely disrupts the the flow of a match like it's not really additive it was a cute little idea but like company of heroes 2 i think got to a place where people liked it but mm-hmm. i would say out of the box this is probably a better company of heroes game than company of heroes two is today Interesting. Uh, so i i feel like some of what you see with the negative reactions is a little bit of like rose tinted glasses toward company of heroes two uh that's sort of being informed by people being disappointed with uh with the current game mm-hmm. got it thank you uh but like there is like there there is an odd vibe to this thing. Like when I play the alpha uh, or they were, you know, it, in general, I know by the time you, by the time they're showing an alpha, like that's kind of the game, right? There's a lot of things that really can't be changed. That's, that's baked in, but there's a lot of stuff I would have assumed was going to be placeholder art. This is just here. Now it's in the final game and like UI that I would have assumed is placeholder. And it's just kind of here. And it, there's a lot of little places where like things are not as informative or as intuitive as you might expect. Uh, and I think there is in places a just general feeling of like this being a little bit underbaked, a little bit shabby mm-hmm. uh, compared to what it should be. But in terms of like the, you know, those good missions, all the pieces are there. The unit mix is really fun. Uh, the four armies you get to play around with, I think, have, uh, you know, have a lot of cool tools in the toolbox. Uh, and I guess I, and I need to play a lot more skirmish and like multiplayer to figure this out, because this is always the part that's really hard to speak to. Like. In general, I think Company of Heroes armies are supposed to have like really strong core identities, um, mm-hmm. like like in a lot of RTSs. You know, faction identity is important. And at first glance, that appears to be true here, that they do have, like, really, like, strong identities. But the weird thing is they sort of level up and game gain. You choose upgrades for them as a battle unfolds that sort of specialize them or or maybe generalize them uh, off of their off of their starting specialty. 
And it feels to me a little bit like there's so much customizability with each of these armies that it's not, I, I can't, I can't go quite so far as to say they feel interchangeable, mm-hmm. but it feels like every army has a line of play that lets it do what the other armies can do. And that feels like maybe it cuts a little bit against uh, creating like strong faction identity, but I'd have to play a lot more than I, mm-hmm. than I have right now. I'm in the process of, of really coming to grips with this. Um, but like, I, I will say like there, there, you know, there are some broad strokes things I really enjoy about the differences between the armies. Like they've gone back to this idea of British forces as being really all about support fire and like call downs. Mm-hmm. And, Meanwhile, like the Wehrmacht, which is sort of the basic German army, has kind of an interesting setup where it's very easy for them to grab a ton of territory at the start of the game. But it's very hard for them to defend it effectively, uh, given their power curve through a mission. And so you have an interesting like as the Wehrmacht, my games tend to feel like I'm fighting a losing holding action for a lot of the match. But if I can get to like late mid game or into late game, I start to have things show up that can really turn the tide. And that's kind of, that's kind of a cool feeling of like, these guys can just do a land rush, like nobody's business at the start. Mm -hmm. And then the rest of the match is, you know, kind of in keeping with the setting. It's you being sort of blasted, like, you know, hill by hill out of Italy uh, as, as the allies advance that kind of comes through in, in the multiplayer. So that's been that's what I've been playing a an absolute ton of uh lately. And yeah, it's it was kind of an odd review because I will say, like, the first impression was such strong disappointment. And then I had some of those great missions and I spent more time with the skirmish, and it, you you just have in a strange place where it's like they make the weakest part of this game such a weird they make it such a centerpiece of the whole experience. But then also at a certain point you can kind of say, eh, there's still a lot of other great stuff here. I'll just right. order off those menus. Right. Got it. Thank you. Uh, Patrick, so I think you had barely dipped your toe in Metroid Prime. I think we were basically just saying, like, hey, this, is, this has been released. Yeah. Uh, but now, of course, it's your daddy's day off project. Mm-hmm. <laughs> what are you finding as you return to Metroid Prime? Yeah, this game still slaps. Metro Prime was an excellent game when it came out. And what's interesting about this remaster is for as much as they've done some really interesting things with the visuals, I think they've done a, a great job of updating that to sort of, you know, match your nostalgic memory. They broadly have not done what usually is accompanying updates like this, which are quality of life improvements. Basically, all that exists is... They gave it standard shooter controls, which did not exist in the original GameCube game. The GameCube controller, you know, had two analog sticks on it, but Metroid Prime did not function in that way. It was a single stick shooter that used the lock-on uh, mechanic. Uh, I, I can't even, like, remember in my mind how exactly moving and aiming worked in that game. But it was not, like, move with left stick, or, like, you know, aim with right stick. That's that's not how Metroid Prime operated. That is new to... Uh, this version of the game. And part of what's interesting about revisiting it here is how much is revealed about 
the controller and forming the design because it is an exploration game first and a combat game second. And then when you map it to standard shooter controllers, uh, that almost exaggerates the disconnect between those two things because suddenly the combat becomes kind of irrelevant. Uh, it's just not that hard to do. Yeah. Like it just makes it fairly trivial and remastered. And that's ends up working out okay because the exploration stuff is still fantastic. The, the level design is still tremendous. The world building is like surprisingly good for a series that like was never really about much more than atmosphere. And so in some ways you could look at this and it could feel a little disappointing. Cause it's like, Hey, it was a product of its time when you update it without doing anything more to address what that is. You could, there are games that that would kind of, it would kind of fall apart. I don't think that's the case here. I mean, I, I have very fond memories of Metroid prime, but basically once I started playing it after about an hour, I was like, I don't remember anything that happens after this uh, <laughs> because it has been, you know, uh, I don't know how many years, but like almost 20 long years time, or whatever, yeah. since I played that game a long time, like that's been deleted from my memory. And so it has really been kind of like playing it again for the first time with just occasional flashes of, oh, right. I, yeah, I, okay. I remember this sequence. And that's just delightful to be able to revisit a game that far in the past that you don't have to constantly tell yourself or like streaming it to an audience. Like, so this is how games used to be. And it's yeah. not that fun anymore. Uh, but like, it's interesting as a historical document. And that is just not, not, not the case here. Like, it is just a kick ass game that, in many ways, I'm thankful they didn't do quality of life improvements. Like the one single thing I wish is like it still has a really cool 3D map that is like a direct uh, there's a direct lineage between sort of like the map and Dead Space that they got rid of for a 2D map because it was a bad 3D map in, in Dead Space in 2008. Metroid Prime, similar era, does a good 3D map. But the one thing it doesn't do is like give you like a sense of the connective tissue because Dead Space is a linear game, broadly speaking. Um, gets a little non-linear-ish in the, in the update. But Metroid Prime is a very non-linear game by design. And so you get sequences where the game's like, you need to head to the east area of the lava. And it's like, how do I, how do I get there? And it's like, well, you go down an elevator. Yeah, but which elevator? And there's like no way to know how an elevator connects to a different sequence unless you've internalized that. And a lot of Mem Metroid is, and, and Prime especially is internalizing a layout with limited uh, game assisted tools to get there and that is also a thing <laughs> there's that a, there's a mode on the ahead. map where you zoom out and you see like all the different areas but that map of all the different areas isn't how they're not arranged helpful. in space that's no. they're not connected in the way that it show it's just like these areas exist and then you can click on one to yeah. zoom in <laughs> to, to explain like the aesthetically like the, how that works is like you have the you know you can imagine like a 3d model of a space right and that is the the overworld that you're in or the uh, the ruins area or the or the lava area. And it's like, hey, you want to check out the world map? And it's like, oh, right, the world map. That's probably going to give me a sense of like how this world is connected. And it's like, <laughs> like, nope, here's just a bunch of like, here's just hexagons? a bunch of like hexagons that that like are differently colored. It's like, you want to look at the other area? It's like, well, no, I want to see how this area connects that area. Like, eh, wrong. And <laughs> oh, you wanted some a ways oh, you wanted a map. I see. <laughs> no, I, I mean, yes, but the game says no. And I actually have really enjoyed that tension. I ex I expect this tension will not exist to this degree in Metroid Prime 4 because it's just not the way these kinds of games are made anymore. But this game has an optional hint system 
that was present in the original game, I believe, or maybe updated in the Wii version. I don't know, but I'm pretty sure it was in the original uh, base GameCube game. And even the hints are not like, they don't tell you much. Like the most you get from this game is, uh, hey, there were some vibrations over there. And you'll get like a little kind of gesture at a, a space you haven't been to connected to a part of the map you already have been. But it's not, you know, I mean, dead, it's so weird to play this with, with Dead Space, which is not a Metroidvania, so it's, it's a different experience. But just the way that game communicates space and travel is you click a button and just, and then just a glowing line appears underneath your character. And it works great for a horror game because you just want to, you're always maximizing going to where you want to go. And I think that works just fine for Dead Space. Whereas in Metroid Prime, there are a lot of times where I just don't know where I'm supposed to go. And this game actually has this really interesting thing that I'd forgotten about, which is that the hint system is time-based. And so let's say you finish a boss sequence and rather than the door in front of you leading naturally to the next area or you getting an ability that like, as, as is often present in these games, like, ah, I can open the purple doors now. Time to open up the map. Where are the purple doors? Time to go figure out what I can do. Uh, There'll be moments, there's been like several moments in like the 10 or so hours of played of this where it's just not clear what to do next. You don't have a little question mark on your map. Uh, you kind of think you've done all of the very obvious doors you would open. And in your mind, you have like three things that are like, oh, right, I did get this new power. I guess I got to go check that out. But I'm pretty sure because what happens in the Metroid games is so frequently your reward for exploration is like you get more missiles and they're fun puzzles to solve, but it is not necessarily the opening of a new area. And so a lot of this game requires a measure of patience that I just don't think modern games like have the patience to give their players. Just like, Hey, you're going to spend 15 minutes and not know what the fuck to do. And then eventually on some arbitrary timer, ding, 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 a little hint is going to come up and tell you broadly where you should start poking around. Some and of, I just miss stuff like that. Some of those it's are just, even it's just shows, really neat. Some of those are even like uh what's it called? Uh location based. Not even timers. Mm-hmm. It's just like, well, once you cross the threshold over here, we'll be like, oh wait, you don't have the gravity suit yet, and you're about to walk into the water. There's gravity hey, stuff yeah, happening. Yeah, over yeah, here. We're, getting, yeah, we're getting some rumblings of a gravity suit over, <laughs> yeah, over, over here. Way. And it's just a <laughs> it's a very subtle way, and it's a subtle game all around. I think that's what I've like broadly better appreciated or just reappreciated in revisiting the game is the real subtlety that's there. And I I'm hope they're able to capture some of that in making a game where the expectation is going to be, hey, here's like a little, there's probably gonna be some fast travel. Like it's pro- like the navigation is probably gonna be a little more on the nose um, in, in Metroid Prime 4. But part of the magic of Metroid Prime, there's a lot of things that are magical about it. But the silence and the tension that comes from patience, I think is a huge part of what makes that game work. And it absolutely holds up, and and even though I have fond memories of it, I think you can go to it now with no nostalgia, and you will be just fine. You will have a really, really good time, and if you've never played one of the 3D Metroids, like, this is the best one. I think 2 and 3, I didn't, well, I didn't, I didn't play much of 2, and I played 3, and I liked it, but 1 is the best, remains the best, and it's it's really nice that you can show an object to people who have not played it before from a game that's, you know, 20 ish years old. Mm-hmm. And you're going to come out of it being like, Oh shit, I understand why this is a masterpiece. Um, and not just intellectually, just like, no, I'm going to experience a masterpiece and also have this game be on an all timer list for me, which is cool and rare uh, these days. Nice. All right. Um, 
we like we, we run pretty long on atomic art so i think maybe we just dip into the question bucket uh and we hold the other topics for monday unless there's something people are dying to get into before we say good night all right uh so remember you can send us your questions uh at gamingadvice.com uh if you if you want to if you want to chum the question bucket uh, so our first question comes in from David from Wisconsin. Hey, Waypoint crew, has game soundtrack ever noticeably lessened the experience for you? And if you could drop a different soundtrack in to improve it, which soundtrack and which game? The reason I ask is I love uh, Hairbrain Schemes Battletech and I want to love MechWarrior 5, though the music, among many other things, makes it really hard for me to connect with it in the way I did to Battletech. I recently played Norco and fell in love with its haunting score, which gave me an idea. I booted up MechWarrior 5, turned off the in-game music, and put the Norco OST on in the background, and the result was incredible. <laughs> it transformed the, hell yeah, bro, isn't it awesome to blow shit up in a giant robot robot vibe into a bleak and melancholy, another colony burns as I endlessly wander this forever war hellscape vibe, which, to be clear, is exactly what I'm looking for. Now, if only I could swap out that main protagonist. Keep up the great work. Fuck capitalism. Go home. David. Worst video game soundtracks. That's such a unique framing of this question. Or or game it doesn't have, like it's just be a mismatch. It just has to be a place where it's like this is not the right score, the right vibe for this game. Mm. So yeah, Ren. I was gonna say I don't know if I can think of any. Like I I will turn off soundtracks in games that I think have an excellent soundtrack and put on my own shit. Like I think Guilty Gear Strive has excellent music. I haven't listened to it in months. <laughs> I put on my sad lesbian music and I do my combo routes. Like <laughs> I cannot think of a game that like really fucked up its soundtrack like that though. I think so. This is, I, I'm, I'm kind of cheating here cause it's not specific. Like, cause I'm struggling to think of a, specific game that fits this template but i but i think people get what i'm saying here when i describe the template there is a style of music that i think especially any game with sort of action there is a tendency sometimes for the default music to be some sort of like really crunchy guitars uh coming in like like i, I pulled up the soundtrack for uh mech warrior 5 and this is the direction they went it is a lot of like uh crunchy guitars being shredded uh like really percussive not quite metal though not as like aggro as metal it's just like crunchy uh and and loud and a bit like you know what tends to work well in doom 2016 or or doom eternal but i feel like that style of music i've heard applied broadly to a lot of things in video games and there's just a lot of games where it is not that is not the vibe, right? Uh, because, you know, if I think about MechWarrior, the, Me the MechWarrior series, for instance, MechWarrior 2 had a really renowned soundtrack, and it's this, like, really odd, haunting, uh, like, generally electric, uh, electronic uh, soundtrack. And, you know, sort of their insight is that most of what you're going to be doing is walking around in a mech. Like, combat is a significant part of that game, but a huge part of it is just like you're, you kind of go thudding along the landscape, uh, you know, doing, doing your mission. And that's kind of the vibe you need to nail. And that vibe is not uh, like percussive guitars uh, and like, uh, you know, 
you know, loud drums. It is instead a little more, uh, you know, a little more ambient, a little more, a, a little more floaty. And that is what works for that. So that's, that's kind of my, my thing is whenever, whenever sort of that default, like insert open source generic rock track here, like is the score for something. It's the biggest turnoff possible. And it comes up in a lot of games, like in, in, in just so many games that are like strategy or action adjacent. And it's a bummer. Uh, you know, I'm, 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 I'll touch on this when I finish it, you know, in the next week or so. But, uh, you know, Hi-Fi Rush, a game I quite like. I think, you know, my main criticism of is that there's only one Zwan song and it's at the end. And so <laughs> if you're going to open the box that is Zwan, mm-hmm. like, don't be a coward. Like put the whole soundtrack. Get your on. hand in that box. Yeah. Like, like pull out get some pieces. Let's go. Really what? A number the of the idea. beast cover. <laughs> Acoustic. Don't mind if I do. <laughs> oh no! I've I've cut my hands on all these broken CDs in this box. Ah fuck! Ah oh no! All the Zwan is in my hand. Ah oh, the shards of Zwan. Yeah, if you're gonna do one, you want it. There might as well be ten. Just make you know the. I think a director's cut of Hi-Fi Rush would. Not have nine inch nails on it. It would just be we've licensed the entirety of that or that one Swan album and just made it <laughs> the entire soundtrack of of the game because the way the music works in that game is that the license tracks accompany like the big boss fights. So right. like you're getting an original soundtrack for the the like the main combat and exploration portions. Play it now because we don't know how long they license those songs for. <laughs> That's true. That's true. And it's it is a digital only release uh, at the moment. So. Uh, although I guess it released on, you know, and Gay Pass and stuff like that, so people will find ways to archive. Oh, really? Tangentially uh, related, but you saw Mikami uh, departed uh, Tango. Yes, um, you know there was some scuttlebutt from some reporters. I think uh, Imran Khan, formerly of Fanbyte and Game Informer, had said that uh, Shinji Mikami, who's the, the main designer of Resident Evil, Evil Within, um, whole bunch of games, uh, he kind of been sticking around longer than he and wanted to because the the thought was if he wasn't there to be the figurehead and like financial windfall that the studio might go under, but with the acquisition of uh, Bethesda or Zenimax by, by Microsoft that, and like the success of a game like hi-fi rush, like suggests the studio is in a place where they don't have to promote everything as Shinji Mikami has returned to survival horror. Uh, so I'm actually pretty but encouraged what he by did, what he did with evil within and it wasn't very good, but then it got good. <laughs> With Evil yeah, but he, did, he, but he didn't – he stepped away from the creative direction and the creative director of Hi-Fi Rush was the creative director of mm-hmm. Evil Within 2. So in many ways, I think the that dude uh, is kind of like the Shinji Mikami in training. That's me just reading yeah. the tea leaves on, on that studio. But uh, I, I would not be shocked if that is sort of – you know, Ghostwire Tokyo kind of got out the door. Like they were clearly kind of training – I forget that designer's name, the very spunky, incredible, energetic girl that like worked there and then left halfway through development. Yeah. Um, there was very a conscious effort by Mikami. And he mentioned this like in the couple of times I've interviewed him was like, you know, like, you have like folks like Miyamoto talking about this, like trying to put forward. Here are people who are not me, who are competent, and they're going to use my name to sell these games because that's just what you do. But these people are fully capable of making wonderful and interesting experiences. And the fact that he's leaving with Hi-Fi Rush coming out is a wonderful note for him to leave on because it, it broadens out what that studio was like evil within evil within two Ghostwire Tokyo. Like it's not just a studio that makes dark horror games, uh, which I like, please make more of them. And there's a hint of evil within three in 
hi-fi rush and i and i hope that happens but uh it kind of broadens the what that studio is capable of because i mean they didn't just make like a really pretty action game they made like like an all-timer like great playing great looking action game and that is just not what i would have pegged that studio is as being uh capable of so I, I think he's leaving the studio in in really good hands and i remember when i when i, I if you google i wrote a piece where i interviewed him and he's he's a difficult interview he doesn't he doesn't talk a lot it takes a lot to kind of get him going but one of the things that kind of uh perked him up was <laughs> like the concept of death and that like he doesn't have that many games in him he wasn't sure how many more he even wanted to make um and i definitely got the vibe from even that interview that he was kind of ready to just be a figurehead and and let other people work on games for four to five years i'm sorry the show has been long enough but this does remind me of a thing that because we were off mm-hmm. monday and i would have brought this up yeah. on monday uh Firaxis gutted its oh, leadership yeah. team. Uh, two two week. people, right? Not Three, just Jake, right? Uh, it's the studio head, longtime art director, and Jake. Uh, and it's the vibes around it st- strike me as very weird because uh, what I saw in the wake of that. Was uh, so I think this longtime studio had was, was a guy named Steve Martin, uh, obviously not uh, banjo and comedy, uh, Steve Martin. <laughs> but what, um, but what if it could be? What if it could be? Uh, he's really he was really busy with only murders, <laughs> only in the murders building, in the and, building. Uh, <laughs> things got really fucked up around the studio. What a great show! Um, so I think he like he departed, and uh, Garthy Angelus uh, departed. And Jake Solomon uh, left and, you know, all of them gave statements, you know, apparently voluntarily, but, you know, jump or, or jump or push is the question. Well, it comes the context here is it comes right after Strauss Zelnick, the CEO of Take-Two, who owns Firaxis, uh, had an interview with uh, Jason Schreier of a Bloomberg in which he was asked about Midnight Suns. Uh, and he said it was they couldn't be happier with it critically. They were extreme, but like essentially described it as like a complete bomb. Like it, it just didn't make it just didn't sell uh, like at all. And so the fact that that comes, all this is happening right after. And Jake has said multiple times, like they let me make the game I wanted to make. Like he has been very emphatic in saying it was essentially a blank check post XCOM to make a Marvel he, game. He, he joked he, in he our want- interview that this could be a career killer. Yeah. Yes. He, uh, he said very specifically. Yeah. Oh, wow. That makes that whole section seem so oh. much, so much more interesting now. Well, it's like you're only as good as your last hit, right? Yeah. You don't get to make the next big thing unless the last thing pays off, and especially with these games being so expensive. And he's not that, – that's just truth, right? Like that is – that is. I mean, I'm sure Jake will be fine. I'm sure in a couple of months we'll hear about a new studio from the XCOM developer, Jake Solomon, with a bunch of industry veterans are making a new yada yada. But uh, yeah, I, I, I'm, I tend to align with you, Rob. I feel like there is a story well, that will come out at some point that is like, hey, th- you know, a bit of 2K being like, what if you just like made a new XCOM and a new Civ game? And so that, and <laughs> there's two other things that like. So the thing that really makes me think this this is a bit of like a corporate takeover of for access and like the end of a diminishment at least of some of the independence they've enjoyed historically and some of the insulation uh, they've had from like business cycles. One reason I think that is because a lot of uh, for like X for access people who would be in the know. Posted the sort of comments you see that like sort of signal that they're not really cool with how this has all gone down. Like, you know, Greg Furch, uh, who was working, you know, long was a longtime art director, was art director on the uh, XCOM, uh, at least not XCOM one. I'm not sure if he, he stuck around for two. 
but he sort of posted about, you know, Jake is the reason that XCOM happened. It was his vision. It was his will that like really brought that project through the process and got it into in, into development. Uh, you know, Soren Johnson was maybe a bit more measured, but also like very kind. Word. But it was just all the sort of stuff that people post where they're not saying like, hey, fuck these guys. Uh, but it's all like just votes of confidence that suggest that uh, this is a move from corporate that wasn't really popular or like well-founded. Uh, so yeah, I think there, there is a bit of a story there. I'm very curious about what that story is, but uh, it's certainly, you know, I guess condolences to uh, Marvel's midnight Suns uh, for, <laughs> taking out an entire cadre of, of leadership uh, at, at for access and uh, apparently being a huge bomb. Uh, but, but also, I mean, they did get to make the game they wanted to make. I'm glad that Jake and folks made like, how do you feel about how midnight signs turn out? Like it's cool. They got to make that and they didn't want to make, or he didn't want to make XCOM three. And if that's what you pivots to that, hopefully the people that are making it are people that wanted to like want to sit and make like an interesting XCOM. Well, the, the thing they, the thing they tossed in the, the, uh, the bone they threw into all of this was we're working on Civ 7. Mm. And which sure, like that's the safe play. That's the hit. Uh, but I think they also said it was going to be Ed Beach designing it again, which is itself a departure, I think, for Civ. I think I think Ed was designer on Civ 6. And in general, they've always tried to have Civ change designers between games. So it goes like Sid mm. Meier, uh, Brian Reynolds, uh, Civ 3 is kind of a weird one, but that's kind of how the lineage goes. And so even there, it's like, you know, is this a is is this a Civ is, is Civ 7 happening? Because like 2K in the wake of this is like, just shut up and make a Civ. Just get out there and, and make another Civ. They've uh, had a bunch of bombs. Yeah. Right? Like I know that like Take Two is a studio that uh, doesn't publish a lot of games, um, has essentially feasted upon. <laughs> they make most Rockstar. of the money from Grand Theft Auto Online. Yeah. I mean, Rockstar, yes. Like, Red Dead Redemption did very well. Grand Theft Auto, uh, you know, 5 obviously did very well. But, like, GTA Online has been the engine of that of that publisher for a number of years. Like, how long have we been hearing about a new Bioshock? You know, Mafia 3, great game, really interesting game. Like, you know, that's not paying the shareholders. And it was Midnight Suns, and then they've had a couple other games that have not done well, uh, in, in like the last six months or so. And so I'm not super shocked that there's a bit of uh, a conservative approach for a studio that got to do a big swing. Yeah. Um, didn't help by just dumping it in fucking December. No. And I don't uh, think the marketing really set up expectations for what the game was or like, no, they cool, which it, was not, I, not I, make it easy. Cause like it has a really like slow burn, like opening learning curve. So it does not really announce what it is up to until you were deep in it. And that's the game's fault for like, hey, you're a Marvel oh, yeah. like card game. You, sh- you sh- this game should have been a lot more fun in the opening five hours than it is. Like, it shouldn't be a full game deep before it gets interesting. And that that's on yes. you know that's on Jake. That's on Firaxis. But this game, like from the gun when this game was announced, it was it didn't have a good answer to why didn't you just make Marvel with XCOM? Why are there why are there cards? Oh, is this like well, a mobile game? And it just ne- was never able to answer that question. I think the game does, right? I think the game answers that question very well. But from the jump, they just didn't really know what kind of game they had, how to market it. And then when you dump it unceremoniously in December after a bunch of delays, it's like, was well, the game coming in hot? 
did this game need another year to like figure out its story so it could have been 40 hours instead of 70 i don't know but it was, it was just it was treated very weirdly uh all along yeah which but, but that also speaks to like sometimes do you want things to fail so that you have an excuse yeah. to like make the changes that you've been wanting to make for a long time. Right. Like that now we can come in, we'll be the adults in the room and say, uh, well, we let you kids do your thing and you <laughs> fucked it up. So now uh, here's this person we hired from Epic uh, a little while ago and put <laughs> Rod right, Ferguson's coming over here to. No, they, they brought the studio head is someone who was brought in from Epic like uh, like a year ago. And, um, and like I think in the statement announcing that hire, like moving to the COO position at Access was like, and they were there for Fortnite, and I am yeah, many people were, uh, but <laughs> there there is a little bit of that, like the vibe is a little bit of that corporate, like I want to rub some of that magic, uh, Fortnite yep. dust on my studio. And I will do that by hiring an executive. Uh, sometimes this happens with media companies and singular uh, reality TV hit series. And, uh, you know, things <laughs> things unfold uh, in a way from there. Uh, I guess last email here uh, to, to wrap up the show. Patrick, do you have a can you hang for this last email or? Yeah, yeah, we're good. This is more of a statement email, but it is a good one. We were, when we were talking about 343 bailing on making their own engine, we got a few replies on that. But we got a good one from Lawson here uh, who wanted to shed some like light on this. Hey, Waypoint crew. I was listening to you all talk about 343's move to UE4, and I thought I could offer some insight on why a studio might move towards Unreal. I'm a designer at Blackbird Interactive. I've worked on Minecraft Legends, a game built on Bedrock, which is a very unconventional and bespoke engine. And I'm currently working on Homeworld 3, which is an Unreal 4. As far as what a game engine is, it's basically the baseline code for the game that's often shared across most games. If you don't use an engine with your game, you have to reinvent the wheel in a lot of ways. Rendering, physics, input handling, basically every basic thing you need to even start moving a ball on a flat surface. Depending on what you're making, you often need to modify certain elements of the engine to achieve your particular goals. For example, the Coalition has modified Unreal in a few ways for their Gears of War titles in the past. 99% of game engines come with some sort of editor, which also needs to be modified and maintained as you develop the game. For example, let's say your team has developed a new fog feature. If your level designers want to place that fog, you may want to add a fog button to the editor. My point is, an engine is a whole piece of software unto itself, and the more you have to modify it to fit your needs, the less time you have to actually work on your game. In the past, when games were technologically simpler, This meant you would often build your own bespoke engine that perfectly fit your needs rather than figure out and mess with someone else's work. Now, though, games have gotten bigger and bigger, both in scope and in technical demands. If you want to develop your own engine that is as good as id tech, Unreal, Unity, or even Godot, that's years of setup work before you can even start work in earnest. Even if you build the game along with the engine, that means there will be people who are waiting on features they need to produce the content they are paid to produce. And every time you want to add a new industry standard feature to keep up with everyone else because you spent years building an engine, ray tracing, better level streaming, visual scripting, proc gen, advanced VFX, etc., you have to build and maintain it yourself. Still, if your game is weird and divergent enough, it might still be a good idea to build your own engine. This is where Epic and Unity, increasingly just Epic, come in. Instead of doing all that, 
you can pay them a percentage of sales and have a really solid base to work with that most employees either know or can learn through Googling things. You won't be finding any useful online tutorials in using a bespoke engine that the general public isn't allowed to touch. For the things you do need to do different, you can focus all your effort into those features alone rather than trying to debug decades-old movement code that's finally stopped working. And if you're a bigger studio, you can even contact the company that made the engine for help or advice for getting your new thing to work with their engine, and they are fully responsible for keeping their engine working and will fix engine bugs you report to them for you. So, for 343, they probably took stock of how slowly post-launch content was being put out for Infinite, and I'd suspect it's partially because of the engine. Of course, another huge element would be the Microsoft 18-month contractor policy, which means there's extreme turnover. Think about all the challenges of bespoke engines I said above and put in the fact of constant onboarding, offboarding for so many people who've never used sl slip space. You'd constantly be losing knowledge of features you built. Stuff would go into disrepair if the engine was even partially built by constantly rotating contractors. And even if documentation was excellent, it almost never is, just a reality of making games under capitalism, I don't think there are even that many people who've worked at 343 for a decade to even mourn Slipspace's death apart from a small core team. If it were me, I'd breathe a small sigh of, I'd breathe a sigh of relief and wish a good riddance if I and my colleagues weren't laid off. Here's hoping 343's workers can catch a fucking break and that management gives them the time they need to get Unreal set up to work well with Halo before they have to start developing the game in earnest. Thanks for such a great show. Hopefully this helps. Yeah, it does. I mean, no, that's... Yeah, that's that's really enlightening. I mean, it, the Halo connection is interesting because Bungie. Well, I don't think, I don't know if they've said it, but there's been reporting about like you know, the development of Destiny, which is also a game buried under at this point like a decade of uh, technological <laughs> and tool weight, in which what makes that game hard to develop is is the fact that it is just using a bunch of bespoke, unique stuff that is slow and bad and proprietary. And so I would be shocked if whatever. Bungie does that is non-Destiny like maybe it uses proprietary stuff but it started from scratch like I wouldn't be shocked if they were also using Unreal Engine because the lesson that increasing that is being learned is whatever good you get out of it like all those points about the contractor stuff is is really yeah. well made Um, like the like that's bad policy from Microsoft yeah. standpoint but also is going to compound the existing issues of using proprietary technology and but it's also hard to figure out when do you pull off that when when do you pull off that bandaid right the, yeah. the time to do that was when they built Halo Infinite right the time to do that was when they were starting that project and then once you've established well we we're building Halo Infinite with you know on Slip Space and also doing a live service game there's no convenient time to say let's build it from scratch because you made a quote ten year commitment uh for the future of Halo. And so they're making they're fixing a past bad decision, and it's still probably good in the long term to have done it. But the time to have done it was like five or six years ago. <laughs> the the thought I had never considered is the fact that like if you're Microsoft, you can get someone on the phone at Epic too and be like, hey, this shit is not working. Or <laughs> could you help us figure out how to implement this thing we want to do? And like you will get resources from the engine maker to do that. Uh, which is a, another really good point as well uh, that you, you effectively are also, you get a chance, you, you pay for tech support uh, on your, on your own tools. Whereas if it's all one department uh, work on your bespoke thing, you know, it's the endless uh, they're going to be overbooked with requests for features and tools. This bio accounts was like one of the things that has really hurt dice over the years and made uh, frostbite such a problematic engine for EA studios is that there was sort of a 
theory at EA that like you use uh, Frostbite for everything and it would be in-house and why give Epic a bite at the Apple? But the problem was that DICE is making their own games and then in the meantime, everyone else is trying to also pepper the studio with feature requests or help with their other games. And it was just overwhelming uh, for uh, for for the scale of company that Dice is uh, within within EA, so that was very, that was very helpful. Uh, it was a great summary of all that is entailed with going bespoke versus uh, off the off the shelf, and it was uh, really illuminating. Uh, so th- thanks for writing in. Uh, that is a wrap on today's episode of Waypoint Radio. If you want more from Waypoint, you can follow us on Twitter at Waypoint, Facebook and YouTube Waypoint Vice. You can follow me on Twitter at Rob Zachney. Uh, Ricardo, where can people follow you? At a underscore Cotto underscore appears. Patrick. At Patrick Klopik. Ren. You can also go check out what we published on waypoint.vice.com. Uh, you can read my review of Company of Heroes 3, and you can read Ren's piece outlining uh, the issues around uh, the discourse around Atomic Heart. And hey, thanks to Waypoint Plus. We've been able to have a bunch of fun streams lately. Uh, you you will, by the time you listen to this, have a chance to watch me like playing through some missions in Company of Heroes 3. You can catch pa- Patrick playing through uh, Metroid Prime. And I think Patrick and I are going to, keeping the spirit of Metroid Prime, uh, <laughs> Dead, we're playing a little more Dead Space 2. Uh, and maybe it's happening by the time you listen to this. Uh, or maybe it's been postponed because a bucket of paint was dropped on my head. Who Who can say how tomorrow will unfold? Uh, and for our Waypoint <laughs> Plus listeners... Uh, we uh, we returned to the world of sports uh, this week. Uh, Patrick learned there are two uh, soccer teams in Manchester. Really exciting stuff. Uh, are there though? Day. I don't. I don't know. I'm still unconvinced. Well, uh, maybe not for long, but we'll see. We'll 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 see what <laughs> happens. Uh, and we also talked a little bit about the Bears being back uh, and and various issues around that. And we caught up on. Uh, the Super Bowl and just how bad our predictions were about how that game would go next week. I think we may have a manhunting and coming up very soon. It does appear that uh, the blatant pandering Ren did uh, by <laughs> like <laughs> like baiting a little Robert Pattinson masturbation uh, in front of in in front of the wow. crowd. Wow, uh, listen, listen. it's because I like that movie. the 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 Robert Pattinson <laughs> bit is like. It's not for me. It's not. You for sold me. the sizzle, though. Like, right. you, like, like the. I, I, I it was for like, enough of our audience. You that love the steak. For. You think we're all going to have a good conversation over the steak? But like, yeah. you gave us that sizzle, and people <laughs> yeah. were like, "I'm buying." Uh, so we will. Uh, we <laughs> just just uh, Robert Pat Robert Pattinson's hog is a little like hibachi onion tower uh, of of this poll. <laughs> That's uh, the worst sentence you've ever said. I'll give him time. I was not, what, sorry, that's one of the worst the, the, sentences the, I've the, ever heard you the, say. The, the the soundboard grows. <laughs> yeah, it does. <laughs> that sounds good. Or if oh, you just want more Waypoint, you can go to waypointplus.com and subscribe. Not only get access to our premium feed, but you're helping support Waypoint and everything else we do here. And if you want to show not just support, but zeal, go to waypointgeneralstore.com and buy some of our fine Waypoint merch. Our theme music is by Bowen. The track is Miss You off the EP Pale Machine. Learn more at waypoint.zone slash B-O-E-N. For now, we're calling time on this week. We'll talk to you again next week. Till then, fuck capitalism. Go home.
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Cool tunes, courtesy of Kato. I'm making cool music now. This is what's happening. That was the music. I, then if it's like, what if you, if you pay ten dollars made... a month, you won't hear Rem do that. <laughs> Sign me up. It's like, what if you made the Transformers transforming sound into a a bad EDM beat? <laughs> Listen, I went to I went to a club this weekend that was like that was the energy, and yeah. and I. <laughs> If if I'm at if I'm at the club and I hear a saxophone and a trumpet solo over your EDM beat, yeah, I'm leaving. 